It's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm worried about college athletics. I'm worried that college athletics as we knew it is dead, over, done. You know, earlier this week, we were talking on this radio show about how turned off some of you are in kind of thinking and watching where it's all headed. All about money, all about conference affiliation, all about television. I got to be honest with you, I'm worried that the consumer is going to revolt. I'm worried that the college athlete is being uh, disrespected and, and neglected in this process as they uh, are shuttled around the country. I'm worried that, you know, in the zest to uh, create uh, football mega conferences, the rest of college athletics is going to die a slow, painful death. One of uh, the most outspoken critics on this topic is right here in the state of Oregon. Eric Reveno, assistant men's basketball coach, Oregon State University. I noticed uh, Rev has spoke out on a bunch of things. He'll post on Facebook. He'll post on LinkedIn. He's written a guest column in Sportico. Um, and, and he's been all over this. He's worried about college athletics as well. And he's somebody who's immersed in it. It's more important and more valuable perspective than I could offer or you could offer. Somebody who is boots on the ground. Eric Reveno came up in the Pac-10 conference as a player at Stanford and now a coach in the same conference as an assistant at Oregon State. He joins us now. Coach, I have to know, as you're watching this all unfold, are you angry? Are you sad? Are you frustrated? Uh, what do you see across the landscape? You know, I think it's sad. I mean, I think, as, like you say, as someone who grew up in the Pac-10, um, you know, started at Stanford in, in, in 84, when, and we weren't very good, and then by the end we were finishing second alongside Oregon State to Arizona and going to the NCAA tournament and having great, unbelievable student-athlete experiences competing in the Pac-10 to see that gone uh, and to be, you know, having to be rebooted as something else. Um, is, is, is really makes me sad. But I think, you know, like what I cling to for, for a sense of hope is that we can salvage what makes it, what made it great, what makes it a good experience for all the coaches, all, all the student athletes I've coached over the last 25 plus years. I, I think I have a good feeling on what makes college athletics great. When, when you are talking, I'm, I'm thinking about the NCAA, and you wrote about this in your guest commentary that you wrote for Sportico. You, you, know, you kind of talk about how the NCAA gets hyper-focused on you know, what constitutes an extra benefit or you know, was taking that, that bowl of rice uh, an extra benefit or that extra drive, and then here we are with the big-picture stuff that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to serve the mission. No, you know, a lot of really smart, well-intended people over the course of my career have wasted 
um, a huge amount of time focusing on minutia. You know, we use summer recruiting. Which days are we going out? Are we going to use two 10-day periods in July or three five-day periods? You know, are we going to do this? Do we start at 5 o'clock that day, um, you know, or do we start at 10 a.m. that day for a recruiting period? And just the amount of time we spend, you know, can you pick a guy up at the airport? Rick Majerus got in trouble for taking someone to the airport in Utah way back in the day whose father had passed away, you know, and and, and just the, the, the amount of time that we spend on that stuff. And I think somewhere along the way, the, 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 the two branches of the NCAA, you know, the NCAA just lost any cohesive uh, vision, and we started focusing on this idea of amateurism as what makes college athletics great. You know, let's 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 not give them an extra T-shirt for going on um, the bald-faced truth. You know, a guy speaks the you know comes down and speaks on your show. You can't give him a T-shirt. You know, and and things like that. We got all locked in on that. And, and protecting amateurism when what makes college athletics great is the fact that we're offering transformative athletic and educational experiences together. And then stuff we can kind of sort out. And that includes maybe having to, we're going to have, we're going to pay them at some point and we're going to NIL and all this stuff's happening. Um, but you know, we, we, the amount of time we spent fighting the wrong battles, uh, is unfortunate. Uh, it's just, it's just unfortunate. It's interesting too, that I, that we see college athletics turning to lawmakers for the answers. And, and it feels like that those answers should be coming from the NCAA. They should be coming from campus presidents and, is any of your frustration with leadership, you know, across college athletics? Yes. And, and every time I say, uh, and I and I let off some steam in one of these, you know, whether it's from, from, you know, LinkedIn to Threads to now instead of Twitter and more, and just trying to blow off some steam or and the op-ed and, uh, op-ed and uh, Sportico, you know, I, I try to find some positive or be constructive, but I think we've, I think, yeah, no, I, and I say, when I say NCAA, I always say we, because I've been a part of it. I haven't, I did, wasn't saying stuff before at times, maybe when I should have. Um, you know, I thought Bill Walton, when he was, I really enjoyed, for those that didn't hear it uh, way back in the spring, when you had him and on, you and John Wilner had him on, for those that know Bill Walton as the, the, the insight, you know, the, the, show that he puts on with the TV commentating, very insightful, very smart, very prepared, talking about UCLA and USC leaving. And the comment he made about like, okay, you, you know, the school's $100 million in the in the, in the the red, how'd that happen? What are we doing about Why are we going to the Midwest to solve that, put those problems? Um, so to answer your question, yes, I, I, I that resonates with me. Like, why are we, let's solve our problems instead of just, and there's, it's a balance sheet. It, it, there's there's different sides to the, you know there's 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 expenses and there's revenues and let's balance it and figure it out not just keep chasing the bigger numbers the bigger dollars and and so I think you need to be like any business mission focused and yes I think the leaders have lost sight of that you know um, and for me this may be a little bit you know strange but what it I, it really struck me when back in the, around 2000 we signed the first six billion dollar TV contract. I don't know if you remember, um, at the number six billion, it was a big deal, and all of a sudden they changed the NCAA tournament halftime. It might have been even before that. They all of a sudden changed it to twenty minutes, and and it was the first time I realized all they're trying to do is make the TV dollars work on a spreadsheet. They needed twenty minutes of halftime in order to pay us what we were asking. We wanted to accept less, 
then we, we, you know, if we want to accept less, then we didn't have to change the halftime. We, and no one talked about it. They just changed the halftime. So we've been profit maximizing um, since since TV, uh, you know, because with the growth of, of college athletics, we've just been profit maximizing of being, instead of being uh, mission-focused. We're talking to Eric Revno, assistant men's basketball coach, Oregon State. Um, you know, you've been all over – coaching at Georgia Tech, coaching in the WCC, in the Pac-10, in the Pac-12. You, on LinkedIn, you posted things that we should be willing to lose and things we can't afford to lose. Help me break that down. What should we be willing to lose and what can't we, you know, what can we not afford to lose? You know, um, I think we, 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 I think it's okay if we, if we lose some things like uh, this, this idea that, that, Student athletes don't get reimbursed. That a stipend can be, uh, you know, can be pay, or that students can have a union, or um, uh, that that we might have to travel some distance. I don't think leagues, league, as much as I say leagues are, the thing that bothers you know that we don't have to have these traditional rivalries. We don't all have to play. Um, football, you know, uh, volleyball doesn't have to play in the same conference as football. Uh, swimming doesn't have to play, uh, you know, in the same, you know, they can, the, the coaches should be empowered to maximize their sport. Maybe the Olympic sports can track and field, can build their, build a track and field conference on the West Coast that really maximizes that sport, um, not just following football around. You talk about Title Nine, like really maximize gymnastics, uh, not just have them do what football does. And I, and I think, um, so I think we can lose some of that. I think, you know, a, a longer flight, I, you know, as much as some of it sounds absurd, the money's there and you want to send a longer flight than that. You know, you can live with that. What you can't lose in college athletics, and I recruit internationally, and I've done it a lot, and I love it, great experience, it's great student-athletes, is, and it's what our system makes us special. We are the only um, athletic body that offers 18 to 22, 24-year-olds the opportunity to become the best they can be um, as people and educationally as, and at, uh, athletically. Uh, it, it's you can say what you want about, and this is at all different kinds of educational institutions. We offer transformative education, athletic opportunities. Kids, I've seen it. I've seen it at Portland. I've seen it at Georgia Tech, Stanford, and Oregon State, and on all the schools that I competed against in those years, where kids come in as a certain young man or woman and come out differently, and they've grown from the experience. Um, I also think we can't lose that winning matters. I think winning is really important, competing and, and trying to win. Um, I don't think Stanford should care that another school doesn't have the same a academic pedigree. As a Stanford graduate, uh, it makes me mad that, like, I, I want to compete, and my Stanford fellow alum wants Stanford to compete in athletics. We're not hearing class notes. Um, so you can lose the idea of like institutions. If they, if they're if a school is following the, the academic standards um, that, that the schools, the athletes are, com the school is comfortable with the, what the athletes are following standard-wise, then let's compete. Let's line up and, and let's get after it. And I don't care what, we're not, it's not, a, it's not a, an academic thing. So I think you, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to lose that. And um, uh, you can't lose that. And I think that's what makes it. That's what makes it great. Um, and I think it's such a unique system, and that's what makes it valuable. And even if you start paying athletes, I think that's still what makes it special. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, I thought a number of times as I was watching the Pac-12, 
you know, dissolve or disintegrate or whatever we want to call it. And maybe it gets rebuilt, maybe it doesn't. But is there any part of you that, that fears that we're really watching the end of college athletics? Yes. Well, a big part of me fears that we're watching. And that's why I wrote and say what I say is that we, if we keep the connection between university and athletics, then we can morph into something really almost as good. I am 57 years old, and I remember a day when this and that and all these things took place 27 years ago when I started coaching or when I competed, you know, 40 years ago or whatever it is now. You know, I could say all these things. And, and what I learned in my experience is that things change, and you've got to be willing to change. What what makes college athletics great is that these student-athletes are, are, are given the opportunity to pursue an education and to pursue their ac athletics. And I think if, I think the future can still be bright if we hold on to that. If we're simply chasing the amount of views, you know, and, and I joke nonlinear or linear, like a bunch of presidents decided nonlinear that, like, I don't even know, like, like who, like, like, and they do these kind of decisions in hours and two hours meetings. I mean, it's just running by committee is really hard for our endeavor right now. But that's that's a different – our governance structure, that's a different topic. But, yeah, no, I, I'm worried about college. And I think the biggest thing is we could keep the college part in the in the athletics. You know, people want to quip about the word student-athlete and sort of um, – it reminds me of the song, like, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Um, you know, what's so funny about student-athlete? I'm okay with student-athlete. Call me old-fashioned. And you don't have to you can take out the highs that you can call them athletes that are students. You can call them what they want. But that's what we need to protect. Eric Reveno, assistant basketball coach, Oregon State, is with us. How do you recruit at Oregon State with – this uncertainty or, you know, as Jonathan Smith put it, he says, you know, it's a game of musical chairs and right now we don't have a chair. How do you, how do you recruit kids? Offering the transformative athletic and academic experience. Someone that fits Oregon State, an opportunity to play uh, and compete and get better. Our resources, my office is an amazing practice gym. It's, 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 next to a weight room when a nutrition center uh, across the street from historic Gill Coliseum, uh, across uh, the, the IM field that new AstroTurfs are put in this summer, uh, is, are the academic buildings, and across that, behind Gill on the other side, the dorms. It's, it's, it's an Olympic village of, of development. I mean, it's just it's fabulous. And so you recruit to that, the young men that want to be the best they can be, be coached, be part of something, be, be respected, and be treated well. Get unbelievable. Abby and academic resources will help these guys do both and can be at the, at the highest level. Um, and that's what you recruit to. Now, who are you playing? You know, the reality is, yeah, they want to know who you're playing. You're no longer in the Pac-12 or, no, we're going to rebuild the Pac-12. Well, who's going to be in there with you? Well, who's going to, you know, those are challenges. Um, but um, the core things, and, you, you know, we've got to, you know, if the narrative from the presidents and the conferences, if we'd stay on, you know, if everyone's talking, if kids are, if coaches are calling kids, assistant coaches are calling kids, and the first thing they talk about is NIL, or the presidents are talking about moving leagues because of um, uh, of better um, uh, TV contracts and bigger checks, then. You know, the kids are going to think those things are important. That's why the narrative that we send from the presidents to the ADs to the coaches has to be about these value-added propositions. It's like your kids. Like, your kids don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do. 
Um, you know, and if ADs and coaches are in schools and doing all that, which is fine, then they're going to think the same thing. That's okay. Like, I don't know why we're so nice to think that they should be different or, or, or that they're not going to follow our example. And so we've got to, someone's got to lean in, starting with the presidents, into what we're doing this for and why. And I think that's where recruiting just takes off. Chip Kelly talked about, you know, hey, look, football's different than everything else. It should just be separated. Keep the other sports regional. Do you support that viewpoint, or do you think basketball is different as well? Um, you know, I think that uh, sport leadership should have more say. And so, um, you know, a good friend of mine, John Tanner, is a women's water polo coach at Stanford, and, and that's very different than men's basketball. And he goes to a Final Four and wins national championships, and his sport's different, and some of the stuff won't affect him regardless because it's just the way things are. Um, I, I, I think that, yes, I think football, every sport should have some autonomy, and we should, you know, th that's the thing when I said the things that we can lose, I think we can lose this league affiliation. I think the TV, if, if, if we're bowing down to TV because that's the, the golden goose, then I think TV would be okay with that. The, from a basketball perspective, we need to protect the conference tournaments. But if all of a sudden it's a regional tournament that fed into the NCAA tournament, I think TV would be okay with it. From a, from a basketball, from a TV standpoint, they're going to protect the football uh, bowl series and the NCAA basketball tournament. So any other substructure underneath that, I think is open to, to conversation. And that goes back to what you say about the leadership and creative solutions. Like we've gotten to a tipping point where um, uh, we need to pause and, and, and you know, the fact that, that Stanford and Cal uh, uh, reportedly are looking at, uh, you know, the ACC are being evaluated. Uh, the fact that that's taking some time is, is confidence building to me that it's it being made, decisions being made wisely. Uh, a few weeks ago, that Thursday to Friday, you know, that you guys covered so well, that with the, the, the Pac-12, like you say, disintegrated, um, if, if the, if the Pac-12 at that point was on the traded on the New York Stock Exchange, <laughs> that they would have termed that a panic and they would have halted trading. But instead, within how many hours was that between like the Thursday night, what you thought was going on, yeah. and Friday when it, you know, like they, if it, literally, if it was overnight training in the Asian market, they would have stopped trading. They wouldn't allow you to sign those documents Friday morning. Like they would have said, let's wait till Monday. And I wish some leadership in that. So yeah, that's a great point because that's what it felt like. You know, I was talking, oh. I was talking to John Wilner and other coaches and ads, and I was saying, you know, this is changing like every five minutes. And you're right, it was a little bit like what, what we see when they halt trading and. You know, Rev, I think I really appreciate you speaking out, Chip Kelly speaking out, Chris Hill, the Utah AD, Bill Walton. I think I think we need more of that. Uh, I think, you know, the more that we can hear from people who are actually involved in college athletics, the more helpful it can become. So thank you for what you're doing. I'd love to get you back on at some point and kind of assess what yeah. is happening after, you know, more of the dust settles. The one thing I would say to that is I'm I'm a little bit of I'm a, I'm a little bit removed from the front lines and I'm able to, you know Scott Barnes is doing a great job at Oregon State as our athletic director trying to 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 protect the things that we're talking about as is our president um, and there's some people doing it they just can't in the positions they are you know, they have, you know, whereas I'm a little removed and I can say some things, they're trying to day-to-day -to -day figure out the next step. You know, they're trying to figure, like, they, 
And, and where my where my comments lack um, productivity is at the, what, the next executional step. You know, I'm able to take like I'm not saying the next step is this. I'm saying okay, we got to have this vision. Well, that's a little easier to say that. So I'm very <laughs> cognizant of that. But anyway, thanks for letting me talk. I get fired up because I love it. It's yeah. important to me. I love working with the student athletes. Well, so you, thank you for you care me. about it. Obviously, yeah. you care about it, and so I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Great talking to you. Really, really important stuff, and I think it's important to get the perspective of somebody who's immersed in that world and is watching this happen before his eyes. Good stuff from Eric Revno. We've got great guests on today's show. DJ Uyungalele coming up later this hour. Oregon State's uh, starting quarterback in Sunday, a week from Sunday. They'll open the season at San Jose State. Nick Carlin Voigt will be along at the top of the 4 o'clock hour, University of Portland Soccer coach, he will be here to talk about um, you know the landscape as he sees it. Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, has he been more testy now in in year two than than he was last season, or is he just more focused and locked in? I don't know. We'll find out. Dan Lanning, five o'clock, be here. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on seven fifty the game. Today's show is very different than uh, most shows that we do, and uh, you know I'm abandoning some of the benchmarks that are traditional on a, a show like today and going hard with uh, interviews. Uh, Eric Reveno, you heard him in the last segment, Oregon State assistant coach. Uh, DJ Uyunglele coming up in the uh, next segment. Uh, after the commercial break, we'll talk to the Oregon State quarterback. I have to know uh, how he's feeling, what his mindset is. We had a great interview with him in the spring. Uh, he will rejoin us. Um, Nick Carlin Voigt, University of Portland men's soccer coach, top of the hour, 4 o'clock, uh, from campus at the University of Portland. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about soccer, but mostly about, you know, he's a soccer coach, and he's a coach who, who coached at UCLA in his last stop before coming to the University of Portland. By the way, the Pilots men's soccer program, they dominated last year at home. They were fantastic. Carlin Voigt will be joining us. We'll talk about that as well. And then Dan Lanning. Oregon football coach. He'll replace the five at five. I'll pepper Dan Landing with questions. Football questions, non-football questions. Somebody somebody uh, tweeted at me, said, ask him which Godfather movie he likes the best. Okay, I'll work that in. Godfather 1? Godfather 2? Where's Dan Landing's uh, vote going to be on that? Uh, Dan Landing coming up uh, at 5 o'clock. Make an appointment. Alert your Duck fan friends that want to hear from Landing. I think it'll be a fun interview. I want to hit a couple of news stories um, that are, are top of mind. Remember uh, the Spanish Football Federation, Luis uh, Rubiales? Remember the guy who, uh, uh, who, who gave an unsolicited kiss of a Spanish player, Jenny Hermoso? Remember he said he was going to resign? Well, he's now refusing to resign after a week of growing pressure and uh, said he was planned to quit and then uh, apparently... Not going to quit, and the Spanish government has started legal proceedings seeking to suspend him. Um, and uh, and they should get get rid of it. This isn't what we should be talking about in the wake of, you know, the Women's World Cup final. And and the more that you examine his actions following Spain's victory, like I know way too much about this guy. He grabbed his crotch in the aftermath of the win, 
He gave that unsolicited kiss on the lips to a player during the medal presentation ceremony. He was running around acting like an idiot, put somebody on his shoulders, um, just way out of line. And, you know, he's stolen all the thunder, not just from the Spanish team, but from the whole damn tournament. It's all anybody's talked about in the wake of that, plus how bad the United States women's national team was. But he's refusing to quit. They're going to suspend him. You better be sure of it. Uh, by the way, the Spanish players uh, are bo- bo- boycotting, and 23 players say they will not play for their country again as long as Luis Rubiales remains in charge. And uh, Jenny Hermoso released a statement along with some other players saying that she's denying that she consented to this, and uh, you know they're calling for him to step down. Just go away already. Go away so that the focus can be on the soccer and the championship and not on you know you smacking your lips and running around grabbing your crotch after your your team wins it's ridiculous also in the news uh, robert suarez has been suspended 10 games for the sticky stuff he is a padres reliever he's been suspended 10 games by major league baseball today by the way sixth pitcher penalized for using banned sticky stuff this season uh, penalty announced by uh, uh, Michael Hill, who is the uh, se- senior VP for operations with baseball. Um, Suarez was ejected on Wednesday for having sticky stuff on his left wrist and arm before he threw a pitch in the eighth inning against Miami. Now, he's denied using any banned substances, saying that he had sunscreen on his arm because it was a day game. Uh, the crew chief, uh, Todd uh, Ticknor, uh, who was the Major League Baseball umpire, said they were just doing a routine check, and they deemed that it was very sticky, so they ejected him from the game. Remember, Major League Baseball has been cracking down on foreign substances since about June of 2021, and, uh, you know, he's just the latest as he gets a 10-game ban for the sticky stuff. Uh, Also in the news today, um, uh, it kind of made news, but we talked about it yesterday. The A's have submitted their application for relocation to Major League Baseball. That's official. That puts the A's one step closer to a future in Vegas, and the fate of the team now resides in the hands of the other billionaire Major League Baseball owners. The relocation committee, by the way, for the for Major League Baseball is Kansas City Chiefs officer John Sherman, Phillies CEO John Middleton, and Brewers chairman Mark Atanasio. So they're going to review the application. They will make a recommendation to Rob Manfred. And you better believe that the 30 owners in Major League Baseball are all going to go, hey, we mostly are on board with this. Uh, The approval requires three-quarters of a vote of the 30 team owners. Now, Fisher gave this pseudo-interview to NBC Bay Area in which uh, he basically said that the city had not raised sufficient money to cover the commitments. They saw a deadline coming. Um, the spokesperson for the Oakland mayor's office has pushed back against those claims, saying the city had, in fact, raised $475 million, was just $100 million short of reaching their goal. Um, the A's lease on the Coliseum expires after next season. The Las Vegas stadium will not open until 2028 at the earliest. Uh, they remain unsure where the A's will play in the interim. Um, Fisher, by the way, said he'd be open to a, an extension of the Coliseum lease. By the way, the A's have the lowest payroll in baseball, and they have not signed a prominent free agent ever in John Fisher's 18 years as the owner. They're in the midst of one of the worst seasons in big league history. They're 37-91. and 91. 
This is a team that won 97 games in 2021 and then tore it down. Matt Chapman, Matt Olson, Sean Murphy, all gone. That's supposed to change once they move to Vegas. Uh, Fisher has promised that in that interview that he did. Interview, using air quotes. He did not allow audio or video. He just took uh, questions from Raj Mathai, the reporter there. Very disappointed with that interview. Um, also in the news, uh, Caleb Williams is the betting favorite. He's the betting favorite for the Heisman Trophy. He's the consensus favorite entering his junior season as the favorite while also saying he's not sure that he's turning pro. That's right. Caleb Williams is going to wait and see who ends up with the uh, number one overall pick. Right now on the betting board at Caesars Sportsbook, he has uh, 15 to 4 odds at Caesars. Uh, so, you know, you're talking about like 4 to 1 odds at the uh, Caesars Sportsbook. No other player has single-digit odds, by the way. Jaden Daniels, L quarterback, is 10 to 1. Quinn Ewers at Texas is 14 to 1. J.J. McPhee, Michigan quarterback, is 16 to 1. Also at 16 to 1, don't look now, Mr. Billboard, Bo Nix. I want to ask Dan Lanning when he comes on the show at 5 o'clock if the billboards in New York and the billboard in Texas do more than just promote Bo Nix. How much of that is promoting the overall football program? Um, really interesting. Caleb Williams, by the way, 42 touchdowns and only five interceptions last year. Odds are against him to repeat. You know, the the uh, the uh, Spooks know this, and I think it's why he's not like a two-to-one. So keep an eye on it. Uh, largest liability in the sports book, by the way, is Georgia tight end Brock Bowers, who is 60-to-one and has apparently elicited a whole bunch of Heisman money in the sports book. So keep an eye on that as Brock Bowers is uh, put put uh, some liability on the sports books. Uh, I have a Heisman vote. You know what I should do during the season? I kind of think like maybe that I should, uh, you know, throughout the season, have you as a listener participate in this. And I think we'll start this next week. So tune in on Monday, and I think we'll talk more about this. But, you know, I kind of want to, you know how like ESPN and some of these entities will do like the Heisman watch? I want us to do a segment maybe every Monday where we talk about the Heisman candidates, and we discuss. And maybe maybe we'll, I'll do something very different. Like, I won't do a consensus vote, but I'll allow you as a listener to lobby me with your Heisman argument. And so when I go to fill the ballot out, you will be well aware of where my mind is and kind of where I'm leaning. Like, I'm not supposed to share what I'm voting, but, like, if we have talked about throughout the season, hey, you think Bo Nix deserves to be one and – uh, Michael Penix Jr. deserves to be two, and I'm just using this as a hypothetical. Our next guest, DJ Uyunglele, deserves to be three. Like, we'll go into that voting process with uh, kind of an idea of who we expect and who we think uh, will end up on my ballot. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. I just made that up right now. I was thinking about it. Because they, you know, they do Heisman Watch. Like, we'll do it every Monday. Maybe maybe we can do it as a benchmark. Steven's nodding at me. Sales, you want to uh, get a sponsor for that? In business out there, want to sponsor the segment? Like, we can make a whole thing about this. The annual Monday Heisman Watch on the Bald Face Truth. And then we'll, you, I'll take your phone calls and you'll say, hey, did you see over the weekend? And you'll tell me who, who should be, uh, you know, on our ballot for that week. That sounds good to me. Sound good to you? All right, coming up, DJ Uyunglele, quarterback, starting quarterback at Oregon State. He will join us. Where is his head as we head towards week one of the college football season? 
You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Oregon State's starting quarterback will be D.J. Uyunglele. He has joined us now. Uh, D.J., uh, that conversation that you have with Brian Lindgren, Jonathan Smith, where they where they say to you, hey, you're our starter, Get, give us an idea of how that went down. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, so I got to end up uh, talking with Coach Smith. Uh, he ended up putting me in his office after one of our walkthroughs. Uh, he ended up talking to me uh, in the office, telling me I was going to be the starter going into game one. Uh, amazing to hear it. Uh, I was very blessed, thankful to be able to hear that from Coach Smith. Uh, appreciate him for trusting me with this opportunity, being a starting quarterback uh, for game one. And I just want to go out there and just play my best ball for my team and be able to be the best team that I can be. Can you remember other times in your life, maybe in middle school or high school, where you know a coach called you in and said, hey, you're going to be our starter? I mean, is it ever – is it like that all the time, or is this one a little different? Um. I think this one's definitely a little different. Uh, there's been times I've been uh, talked to coaches. I'm gonna be started for high school and different stuff, but no, this one was definitely different. Uh, for me, it was special. I think coming here to Oregon State, um, it lived up to the hype of everything. And I thought Oregon State was gonna be from the city to the coaching staff to the players to everything that I was looking for in a college, and I loved it. And for me, this is a special opportunity. Uh, don't take lightly. I take uh, great responsibility. I just want to go out there and go out there and be the best person, best player I can be each and every day, work my tail off each and every day, and be the best quarterback I can uh, for the Beavers and for my teammates as well. Give me an idea, because I know the last time we talked on radio, we talked a little sure. bit about the 49ers offense and and yep. sort of the influences that you see at Oregon State. Now you've had a chance to fully immerse yourself in the offense. Are you, are you seeing a lot of that Niners stuff? Yeah, no, definitely. Man, I think the base thing, I'm excited. Excited about the offense, like we talked about the last time. I uh, see a lot of NFL schemes with the offense, what we do, what Coach Lingren does. I think he does a great job of tailoring different offenses and with his style and the offense that we run. I think he does a really good job of playing complimentary football with the run in the pass game, trying to be 50-50, 50% run, 50% pass, doing a really good job of play action, uh, play pass stuff. And it simulates NFL offenses, NFL scheme as a whole really well. So I'm super excited, man. I'm excited coming up for this week's game plan for San Jose and going into week one. All right. They're really different to see the team captains at Oregon State. Bunch of linemen. There's like four linemen who made team captain. What does that say about Sorry. about the team and about the offensive line? Yeah, man. I, I, I think it's great. I think, first of all, I think our team captains that we have is – I think all five of them are great representatives of the team, from Katan to Hodge to Taliese to Josh and then uh, uh, Jake. I think they all do a great job representing the Beavers, man. But I think like he's talking about, the offensive line, I think, yeah, it starts up there in the defensive line as well. Having four uh, defensive and offensive linemen, having four linemen as your captains, I think that shows a lot about where the heart of the team is at, about uh, what a lot of respect is uh, for this team is at. It starts, uh, starts with the line, starts with the guys up front. I think it just shows that those guys up front have a real representation of the program and really respected and trusted by their peers on the team. DJ Uyunglele, the quarterback at Oregon State, is our guest. Um, people don't know Corvallis well. They don't know the city. 
Tell us, like, when you tell people sure. from, you know, home, if somebody, a cousin asks you, hey, what's it like mm -hmm. there? What do you tell them? Man, I tell them it's a great place, first and foremost. I say it's a great city. Sequoia is great. It's a chill place. Uh, not uh, not a whole lot to do, but there's, there's definitely enough uh, for you to do here that's going to keep you out of trouble, that's just going to be able to be chill, and you're going to be able to have a vibe here. For me, I love it. Uh, I have a girlfriend, and we just go, we're able to just walk around, chill, not getting bugged. You just be able to just live your life. And for me, Corvallis is great. I think it's a very pretty city. I think it's a pretty place. There's a lot here besides just hiking and different stuff and getting different food. It's a great spot. So when I tell people back home about Corvallis, I'm like, yeah, I love it, man. It's a great spot here. Your class schedule, I know I know we're going to talk football on this call, but it, give us an idea yeah. of, you know, for a quarterback who is an upperclassman, you know what kind of what are you taking online classes? You know, and I think I think last year Bo Nix at Oregon told me he was taking yoga. Uh, Jaden Grant had mostly <laughs> online classes. Like, yeah. you know what what's in your schedule? Yeah, so I'll even for this semester. I know last uh, the last two terms that I took, there are a lot of my classes online. Had one in person class with a flute class, a Native American flute class. That was pretty dope. I thought it was really cool, but for the most part, a lot of my classes are online. Uh, like, I'm graduated already. I already have my degree, and right now I'm just trying to take online classes just so I can be able to just focus, uh, focus a little bit more on football. Yeah, and I, think, I don't think it's that unusual because, you know, somebody said that, you know, uh, at LSU, uh, Angel Reese mm -hmm. was taking all online classes, and I said, I don't think it's that unusual if you are an athlete because you get priority registration and you want to take online courses. I don't think it's that hard for you to not have to be in a classroom. Is there any part of you that, you know, you probably have been in classrooms, like, you know, because you do have your degree. Yep. Like, there's, you probably yep. don't miss out on that experience. Um, for me, uh, I think I'm a little different. I don't. Um, I think for me, I mean, I've been in school my whole life since kindergarten and then all the way through high school and then college. So I've been in the classroom my whole life. So for me, man, I'm a little I'm a little past that. I don't, I, I'd rather be at the house or be at the facility working on some homework on my computer or be on the Zoom class and just logging in and be able to just be on my computer from the comfort of my own home. So for me, I like online class. I think it's a lot easier for me to focus on school. I don't have class. I can just wake up and open up my computer, just sit right here on my couch or sit at my, sit at my table in my house and just go to class. For me, it's a lot easier, and I like it a lot better. Did you watch the quarterback series on Netflix with Patrick Mahomes and Marcus Mariota and Kirk Cousins? Yes, sir. No, definitely. Yeah, I got to see, I think, uh, how many episodes were there? Seven? I think, I think seven I, or I eight. Seen, yeah, seven, seven or eight. eight. I'm like yeah, halfway I into it. I one more left, but I've seen, I've seen all of them except for one. I've seen the last one yet. What's your takeaway from that? Because I'm watching that, and first of all, yeah. I, I, I don't know how you could not like Patrick Mahomes. He's such a competitor. Man. He's having fun out there. He's encouraging all of his teammates. Like, he's such an uplifting person. Yeah, no, I think he's unbelievable. And I think the quarterback the quarterback show does an unbelievable job of showcasing. I think all the quarterbacks on that show were from Mariota to Kirk Cousins to Patrick Mahomes. I think they do a great job of just showcasing the football side of everything, from the X's and O's to what they do at the facility, from practices. And then also my favorite part was seeing how they live their day-to-day -day life. Yeah. I think from where they're hanging out with their kids to hanging out with their wives and just how they go about, like what Kirk Cousins were talking about, Man, he takes a day off each and every week to, uh, to spend time with his wife and his kids and just to get away from football. I thought, wow, that's pretty crazy to see an NFL quarterback take one day out of the week just to uh, detox from football and not do football all day. I thought that was pretty crazy. But going back to Patrick Holmes, I think I think it's, it's unbelievable. 
I think the show, show did a great job showcasing how much extra work he put in to be able to win in that uh, Super Bowl. And then I think he's just super well-deserving of what he just did. I think he's reaping the benefits of what he put in the work. And I think that an unbelievable job showing that. I don't know if I'd want a documentary crew around me all the time. I guess if the, if you're doing it yeah. one, one season. Nah. But, you know, there's part of you I can get that you sometimes like to just be low-key. Yeah, no, me personally, I wouldn't want to have the documentary crew follow me all, all the time. I'd rather just be at my house, chill, hang out with the homies, hang out with my girl, hang out with my family. Uh, for me, I'd rather just keep the cameras away, stay away from the cameras as much as possible. Your brother, Mateo, is over at Oregon. How often are you getting to see him? Since fall camp started, since beginning of August, I haven't seen him since. Uh, but before that, I was trying to see him. Uh, at least uh, at least every other weekend or sometimes once a week, just depending on how much time he had. Try to see him on the weekends, go over there, come, go see him. He'll come out here sometimes to get a haircut out here. Uh, but uh, at least saw him to maybe once a week or may, at least every other week. All right, you're going to get a chance here against San Jose State to get into a football game, get your first game. You know, what do you want to get out of that? What are you? Do you set personal goals? Is it team goals? Is it simple stuff? Like, you know, as you approach – Game week, what are you thinking about? Uh, for me, it's, I think it's the day-to-day -day preparation. I think not thinking about the game as much, but thinking about each and every day leading up to the game. I think the biggest thing is that, yeah, obviously you can't wait to the game. I'm super excited for the game, but the things that it's going to be able to make you play great in the game is uh, starts from starts from that Sunday or the Sunday preparation leading all the way up to game day, from the uh, from the Tuesday to the Wednesday to the Thursday practice, the Monday meetings, the Sunday practice slash meetings. I think leading up to all that, I think that's where it starts out at. So I want to be able to have a great week of practice, uh, have the right mindset going to each and every practice, be able to be locked in, to focus on the game plan, understand it. So I can go out there to the game and execute it. But I think my only goal, man, is just to get a W. I don't really have too many personal personal goals. Uh, my goal each and every week is just to be able to find a win, whatever that takes. DJ, we don't get a chance to see Jonathan Smith away from, you know, when he's in football coach mode. What is he mm -hmm. What is he like? What is he like as a person? What is he like, you know, in your dealings with him? You know, same thing about, yeah. you know, when you're telling people about Corvallis. When you're telling them about Jonathan Smith, what what do you say? Uh, I think my first impression of Coach Smith would be, I think he's just a chill guy, man, super chill. I think I think a lot of people would say that if they met Coach Smith or see him outside of football. He's hella chill, chill dude. Um, I think he's a family guy, but he's just he's just chill, man. Like he's just a cool coach to talk to. You can talk to him about whatever. Like he's open. He's an open book. Like, I can talk to him about whatever I want. And he's, he's always eyes and ears. He's always there to listen and to give his opinion and different stuff. But he's just cool, man. Uh, that's my, my uh, perception of Coach Smith. He's just a chill dude, super cool dude, laid back, guy you can just have a conversation with and just have no stress about it. He's super dope. He and I texted about you when the Dodgers drafted you, and I, he was pretty stoked because he's a yeah. Dodger fan. I'm a Giants fan. We, okay, we, you know, I'll... it's okay, right? You know, it's not personal. Yeah, no, it's, it's all right. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, it was interesting how much of a baseball fan is, he is, and I, I think he probably was geeking out a little bit about that. Yeah, no, he told me uh, when I got drafted, he's like, man, I'm a huge Dodger fan. I didn't know that until he told me about that. So it was pretty cool. No, but he was he was super excited for that. He, was, he, was, he told me congrats, man. And I said, appreciate it, Coach. But, yeah, he's a, he's a big Dodger fan for sure. And I saw uh, Beats by Dre has got you in an NIL situation as part of their elite, uh, you know, endorsers, which is really cool in today's 
day and age, and it's yes, neat, neat to see opportunities like that. And what does that mean? What is does that you know? You're just an ambassador for them, or are they backing up a truck with uh, headphones for your teammates? What's going on with that? Yeah, no. So um, right now it's still in the works, but uh, definitely an ambassador for Beach Man. I like. I mean, it's a great opportunity. I think it's an unbelievable blessing uh, for me. This is my second year working with Beats. Yeah, I'm super thankful to be able to work with them. They're great partners. I uh, love what they represent. Been wearing Beats since I was a little kid, so um, it's always a great. It's always great to be able to uh, be an ambassador for Beats. But yeah, no, I think right now we're still working on it. But that's that's definitely the plan to be able to try and get everyone on the team a pair of Beats. So it's, it's in the works, though. It hasn't, hasn't happened yet. I'm not sure when it when the Beats are getting here, but it'll be coming soon, though. All right, Anthony Gold, uh, you're one of your targets at wide receiver. He's got a deal with Jamba, and uh, he gets a bunch of free Jamba. So make sure you trade him some headphones for some Jamba, right? There's There's got to be some deals oh, going yeah. on. <laughs> there's yeah, gotta be. yeah, I'm gonna definitely have to tap in my hand. Someone give me some job juice. All right, uh, DJ, I appreciate you. I will see you at San Jose State to, for your Week One game, and uh, we wish you the best. Thanks for joining us. Yes, sir, man. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you, brother. Okay, take care. Really, really impressed with DJ Uyengalele. Um He's he's easy to root for. So is Bo Nix at Oregon. I feel like if you if I look just from my vantage point, we're, you and I are at a barbecue. And you're asking me, because I get these questions all the time from friends, neighbors, family members. They say, what is your favorite sport to, to cover? Or what do you like to write about? Or, you know, who's your favorite interview? And I, I have to tell you that right now, like today's show is a great example of this. Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach show. DJ, Oregon State quarterback on the show. Uh, Eric Reveno, assistant basketball coach, Oregon State on the show. Um, you know, uh, you know Nick Carlin Voigt, the soccer coach, University of Portland on the show. This this radio show just aims to get the best possible guests that you would be interested in who has something to say, that something you'd be interested in hearing and putting them on the show. And people always will go, well, so-and-so, they're home of the Ducks, or they're home of the Beavers, or they're home of the Blazers. Or, I, I'm just home of the truth, home of the good interviews and home of the truth. And this is a great example. I feel like Dan Lanning at Oregon is an easy guy to root for, and Jonathan Smith at Oregon State, easy to root for. And DJ and Bo Nix, and I, I think we have – I don't want to say this in a bad way, but I think we have one of the most likable classes of athletes and coaches at this time in this era that we've ever had in the college game in our region. It's just a very likable group, and I'll even extend it to Washington and Washington State. And I know Duck fans and Beaver fans don't always like to hear that, but Kalen DeBoer at Washington and Michael Penix Jr., quality. Jake Dickert, Cam Ward, quality. It's just really interesting. I think we're in a sweet spot with interviews like this. Great stuff from DJ. Leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Talking a lot about college athletics and focusing a lot on football. I want to pivot to the other football. Uh, Nick Carlin Voigt in the University of Portland Pilots men's soccer team. They were fantastic last season. It was like the best season in like three decades uh, at Merlot Field. It was um, uh, a home record that 
was, uh, what do you got, bells going off in the background there? I'm outside the chapel and the bells are going. I love that. <laughs> On we're the get, top of the hour. We're getting... well, I'm just walking, I'm oh. walking out, but yeah, I'm right outside campus. It's the uh, start of the school year and orientation is happening for all the new freshmen. So I love that. Our, our but, beautiful uh, bells that are reminding us at the top of the hour. That's good. We're fine with that. We can do that. We'll roll with it. Hey. <laughs> So, so I was just talking about the home record last season, like undefeated at home. You guys were fantastic there, and you know you, you're going to try to keep that going tonight. You got Sacramento State tonight at seven o'clock for people who want to go to Merlot Field. Next Friday night, you see Santa Barbara at home. So the next two Fridays, you got big games. But give me an idea of what you know why you guys were so tough. You think at, at home last year? I think we we definitely established a Merlot magic environment, right? Where we had a real exciting brand of, of, of soccer on display. We were the fourth nation's you know leading goal scorer uh, team in, in the country, and um, we played on the front foot. You know, it was exciting. We scored 51 goals last year, and you know, able to send three players to Major League Soccer. And um, I think it's a brand of soccer that's exciting. There's individual talent. But it's also we, we share the ball and, you know, we play a positional game model where I think, you know, we very much believe in, in entertainment, right, where people are going to come and watch us play. We, we have to put on a show. We have to entertain them. We want to be exciting. And, you know, we want to definitely be a team that uh, represents the, the values of the city. And, and I think those guys both on the field and then in the community and the summer camp programs that we run were really great role models for to local young players, and, and they identify with those guys and got behind them, and, you know, they got to see guys like Brandon Cambridge, who, you know, now in Major League Soccer scoring multiple goals, and, and, and guys like Benji Michelle in the past who were, who were playing, been, you know, play with a full national team. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a great place, one, to watch a college soccer game and, and from a fan perspective, and then, two, uh, as a player, you know, we, we have a European environment where we have drums and chants and flags and, uh, it feels very much like it, it's a destination for soccer, which, you know, helped us have uh, an undefeated season at home last year. Give me an idea, because I've watched your recruiting classes, and, you know, you're in there recruiting against the best of the best nationally and not surprised that you're having the success, uh, you know, as you did last season. But uh, how have you managed to kind of increase the recruiting profile over the years? Well, I think it's selling a vision and having a blueprint for individual player development, right? So a lot of young men, they want to get to professional soccer. And guys like Dylan Pierre, Ray Ortiz, or Chris Reeves, um, we feel like we can be a, a platform for them to spring on to the next level. And that we feel like we can we can help them develop, not just as a soccer player, but as, as a student athlete, as a human being. You know, I'm very much big believer my parents raising as the power of education and you know as, as, a, as a coach we're just an extension of, of, of teaching and learning and um, we're able to to help improve right and I think that is what excites me so much is, is a group of guys who all have a common goal and then letting them have team success and then therefore when you have team success is individual success so recruiting is, is the lifeblood of of any program, any university, you know, you need to continue to have talent, but then also you need to continue to develop that talent. And, you know, a couple of people asked, asked me last year, like, where Brandon Cambridge transferred from? And you know, he, he was with us for, for two years prior. He just didn't put up the numbers. You know, and he had one goal in the, in the shortened COVID season, and then he had one goal in 2021. And, you know, he then went to 13 goals and seven assists, Kermit Sanga, 
similar, like tripled his production. So it does take some time to, to develop these young men, but I think when you create a culture of excellence and you create a, a culture where there's high standards and, you know, we're open in, in, in our brand of football, like we, we commit a lot of numbers forward, we want to score goals, we want to be on the front foot, we want to play a progressive uh, brand where we're in control and we're trying to dominate the game. I think when people come and, and we have, uh, you know, another nice crop of recruits already committed, but when they come and watch us play or, you know, they see our clips on social media, they see uh, something that's exciting and they want to be part of it. And I think that's, you know, at the end of the day, this is a game. And, you know, we want to excite recruits with the way that we play and a very up-tempo, high-press, kind of uh, relentless in-your-face mentality of football. And I think that part is exciting for, for top individual players. I think also our results against, you know, quote-unquote, the Power 5 schools, which now you can maybe say is the Power 2, but, you know, we were able to beat Oregon State in the second round of playoffs and you know, we were able to beat UCLA three times in a row. And so I think when you start getting those results against, you know, quote-unquote, the big schools, um, then it's an argument that, hey, you know, this is, a, this is a, a destination for soccer. There is no American football. We're in Soccer City, USA. We have one of the best grass fields in the country. Uh, we have a fan base. We have a rich history that, that Clive Charles and, and Bill Irwin and these incredible young alumni and, and older alumni have come before us have, have helped create. And then our obligation, you know, collectively from a coaching staff to current players is, is to leave a legacy and then to leave the program better than we found it and, and to continue to, to honor those who, who built this place. And, and our job, I think, is just to keep, you know, trying to add years to, to that legacy and, and to try to accomplish things that hadn't been done before. Nick Carlin Voigt, University of Portland men's soccer coach, is our guest. Uh, you mentioned the Power Five. i got to ask you, like, what do you make of what's going on nationally uh, in college athletics, and do you feel insulated from that, given that you're in, you know, a conference that isn't football-driven, or do you just focus on the day-to-day? -day? Like, you know, what do you see happening on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, there's two, two parts to that question. It, it's a great question, John. I mean, I think the here and now is we've got to get this team ready for this season, right, and, and filling in some holes that we had from guys who went pro early or you know, guys we signed who, who never showed up because they, they went pro. Um, but I, I think from an Olympic sports perspective, regardless of gender, I, I don't know how these moves are, are great. You know, like if, if you sign up to, to play beach volleyball and you're at Corvallis, like I don't know how going to Rutgers for a beach volleyball match is like a, a, a great thing for the student-athlete experience. I know this is all TV revenue-driven and um, big conference-driven, but... You know, I worked in the Pac-12 for five years, and to see that conference, you know, really the conference of champions just disappear, you know, essentially, you know, almost overnight, you know, I, I never would have guessed that uh, UCLA would be in the Big Ten, and then a little bit later Washington and Oregon would be in the Big Ten. So, you know, Pac-12 for men's soccer has, has kind of been the bedrock of, of anchoring the West Coast, and um I think it comes back to just controlling what you can control, and that's way above my pay grade. I don't have any control over conference realignment. But one thing we know about the world and one thing that's, that's constant is change, and we have to be nimble and, and ready to adapt. And, you know, I, I think they're going to go through this model and 10 years going to say, okay, this doesn't make any sense to send uh, you know, our baseball team from Oregon all the way to Maryland to play, yeah. to, to play a baseball game. So I think at some point there'll, there'll be realignment back the other way, hopefully for Olympic sports, because we have so many good partners and so many strong programs here that, 
you know, Portland should be playing Washington and, and, and Oregon should be playing Oregon State in football and, you know, Oregon State's women's team should play Oregon's women's team. Like, these are just natural rivalries where, um, you know, you start to worry about the fabric of college athletics and why we got into it. It's not because of, you know, TV revenue deals and uh, name, image, and likeness deals. And, you know, it's really for the student-athlete experience. And, and for football, when they play, I think Chip Kelly said this really well the other day, they, they only play one game a week. You know, and they have, what, 12, 13 games, and they can afford to fly charter. But, you know, for the non-revenue sports who really, if you look at the Pac-12, like <laughs> – the non-revenue sports have won the majority of the national championships at UCLA or USC. Um, let, let's not disrupt something that's working really well just, just for the revenue sports. And so I think uh, hopefully cooler heads will prevail and um, at some point they'll do things that make sense for the student-athletes because at the end of the day that's what this is all about. Like we coach for the student-athletes and, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of kids pick a college because they want their parents to come watch them play and now if they're in a, a bi-coastal conference, you know, the parents aren't able to fly to the East Coast just for one game. So it, it, it's scary times. I think things are changing fast, but, uh, you know, that's all down the road. And in the short term, you know, our league is really strong and, and our scheduling has been really strong and we'll continue to control what we can control. I kind of think that the WCC could benefit from some of this. To get, and, I, and it's anecdotal, but I, I was in a hotel in Seattle when UCLA's men's soccer team was playing Washington last season. And I talked to some of the UCLA players and they were like, hey, it's not going to affect us. They were graduating or, you know, they had, you know, one more year of eligibility, but they were like, sure. I can't imagine, you know, taking a scholarship at UCLA and then, like you said, going to play a, a Big Ten schedule and their parents can't mm -hmm. see them play. And you know, they're like, what about the West Coast? And I even talked to a women's soccer uh, recruit in her family that, you know, they were on a visit to Oregon State and they said, hey, we're just going to pump the brakes here. We're going to see what happens because their kid has some offers in the WCC. And I, I kind of think your conference is doing it in a Olympic sport spirit you know and i think you you might benefit a little bit off that even though it's not for the greater good yeah i think i think we're positioned well you know i think uh you know you look on the men's side there's there's been you know multiple programs in our conference who, who've been to a college cup and you know have won a national championship on both the men's and the women's side and you know our women's team has won two national championships our men's team has been to three elite elite eights and uh we've been to two college cups I think it just continues to reinforce that UP is a destination, and um, the part I do worry about, John, is the scheduling. You know, can can UCLA have not been here for a regular season game uh, until last fall, and in probably 20 years? And you know, are these schools now going to travel? Are the big schools now going to travel to the Portlands, where maybe from an RPI perspective or their own league schedule, you know, they don't want to take on more travel? So just the equity and scheduling, I think, you know, you worry about a little bit, but. Um, um, we'll see what happens. Uh, it's not easy to get good opponents here. It's not easy to continue. You know, we've had Syracuse in the, in, in the Merlot field. We, we've had Michigan State. We've had UCLA. I think we'll always keep good relationships with, with Washington and Oregon State, our, our, our Pacific Northwest uh, counterparts who, who do a great job. But, you know, getting these, you know, Indiana used to, for example, travel and play games here. And, you know, a lot of these teams in the ACC and the Big Ten, they just sit at home and they're not incentivized to travel, which I think, you know, is, is part of the fun experience of, of college athletics is seeing a different part of the country. And, and I know uh, for me as a student athlete, that was such a great experience when you can, you know, see places you've never been through the lens of sport.
University of Portland men's soccer coach Nick Carlin Voigt with us. Um, you know, I was looking at your roster, and, you know, you've got academy players all over it, but Isaac Homer is a, a Port, Portland native, and you've got, uh, you know, a kid like Jacob McDaniel who's at Liberty High School, and you've got West Lynn kid Jacob Babali. I mean, are we doing a good job in our in our backyard of developing soccer players? We're trying. I think, um, you know, for so long, youth soccer was pretty consistent, right? And then U.S. soccer got involved, and the acronyms have changed, and the leagues have changed, and now there's an MLS Next Pro team. And so there's so many more options now for, for top players. I remember recruiting, you know, Rubio Rubin from from Portland to UCLA, you know, seven, eight years ago. We had Marco Farfan committed, and, you know, the Timbers ended up signing him. He's gone on to have a great career. And, you know, I, I was proud of our group last year. You know, we had... Uh, eight four-year American players in, in our starting 11 and two Oregonians, right? You had Nick Denley from FC Portland, the, the, the club that Clive had built, and uh, we had Jacob Babali, who um, was our leading goal scorer in the tournament, walked on here, came from Westland. Neither of them played with the Portland Timbers Academy for different reasons. So, you know, development for men's soccer uh, goes in so many different ways. I think we always want to look inside out first. We always want to look in our own backyard, get Isaac Homer, Jacob McDaniels, uh, Jacob Babali, and, and try to recruit kids who maybe grew up coming to Merlot Field, maybe were a ball boy here, came to the soccer camp when they were young. Like, that might mean a little bit more when they have Portland across their chest, you know, but I think at the end of the day, um, from all of like the legendary players, the Heath Pierce's, the Pinos, the Casey Keller, a lot of, you know, our top players have been from outside of Portland and we need to have a mix and a blend and we need to be nimble in terms of recruiting that maybe we can go into the, the, the grad transfer portal and get a Cypriot goalie like we had in George last year who, who was a two-year captain or, you know, find a grad transfer from Seton Hall like C.J. Kibling from Sweden where, you know, the game is so global and I think our recruiting has to match that and we have to be very, very global as well. But what I love to have uh, as many top Oregonian players as possible. Yeah, the Timbers Academy and uh, the Timbers 2 are doing a really nice job of, of developing some young players. There are some really good younger players coming up through the area and, you know, we want to try to keep them home and, and play on Merlot Field. Regular season opener at home, Sacramento State. Uh, you can get tickets at portlandpilots.com. Uh, Coach, thank you for joining us. We love having you on. I don't want to just bring you on, you know, when you're in the NCAA tournament and, you know, when it's the obvious time. But let's keep touch uh, during the season. And, and as you keep this going, maybe highlight some of the big games that you have at Merlot Field and uh, beyond. You've got Oregon State, I think, in October. Coming to Merlot. Yeah, that was that will be a great rematch. That's always a great rivalry game. They have uh, a new coach in Greg Dalton who's doing a really good job, and they're a great program. But you know, I just want to again thank all the fans out there listening for coming out and supporting uh, UP Men Soccer. There's not a better place in the country to watch college soccer than Merlot Field. So we, we hope to see you, and we can't do it without you. Go Pilots. Coach, thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Really interesting uh, comments and perspective from Nick Carlin Voigt. I mean, again, he's he's at an, he's coaching an Olympic sport, and we're going to watch Pac-12 teams, and not only do the Pac-12 teams, we're going to see the Big Ten teams that have to travel from Big Ten country to game to play games in Seattle and to play games in Eugene. And I think the stress of that, in in addition to the teams that are going to go play in Los Angeles, will be will definitely have an impact and be something to kind of track as as uh, the Big Ten Conference and these schools all play each other. But I think it was just fantastic to get his perspective on 
sort of, um, you know, the, the, the view from the WCC. And I think it's an interesting place for that conference to be in, given that, you know, you've got Gonzaga in basketball. You have the University of Portland teams in soccer and in baseball that, that have been largely successful. Um, you, you know, you've got some athletes who are on the West Coast who want to play in the Pacific time zone, who want their parents to be able to see the games, in particular if they're playing Olympic sports that aren't, you know, widely televised. And so I do think you have some uh, – I think it'll be interesting to track whether or not the move to the Big Ten Conference harms the Olympic sports in the Pac-12 footprint. Does it cause those sports to have a more difficult time to recruit? Is the beneficiary ultimately a program like the University of Portland? Regardless of that, Nick Carlin Voigt and his team uh, were lights out last season. They had uh, an undefeated home record. They play a, uh, a very entertaining style. They go deep into the NCAA tournament, knock out Oregon State, which had been a perennial power in that conference and in the, in the NCAA bracket uh, under Boss, the coach there. But uh, now he's off to the MLS, and um, you've got um, you know a, a roster here at the University of Portland that is poised to make some noise this season. And I don't want to be that radio show that comes in at the 11th hour when they are enjoying a run in the NCAA tournament and for the first time has the coach on. So... I really appreciate Nick Carlin Voigt making some time for us and joining us and, and really talking about things outside of the soccer itself. As exciting as the season is, exci- as, as much as he wants you to come out to Merlot Field tonight and check out that game at 7 o'clock, um, as cool as that is, I'm as interested in just hearing what he sees from his vantage point, being a guy who was an assistant coach at UCLA, who has now moved over to the University of Portland. And by the way, now he's recruiting against UCLA. I just am fascinated by the dynamic that has been fostered and created by all this movement. And again, like, you know, you, you know where I stand on this stuff. Like, change is inevitable. It's sure. It's like you might as well try to hold back the tide, right? Uh, all of that. Money's going to drive all these decisions. That's cool. But I also think there's got to be some common sense and some logic buried in it. Chip Kelly spitting truth with his comments about, you know, why are we doing this? Why not just separate football? You've got a number of coaches who have come out and talked about it at length. It just makes no damn sense to have these teams dragging student athletes, uses the air quotes, student athletes across the country. It's like Jordan Acker, the University of Michigan regent, said on the show earlier this week. These are employees. When you start asking uh, uh, an athlete to get on a plane and travel across the country to play in a game that creates revenue for your for your university, that's, by definition, that's an athlete. That's a J-O-B. That's a job. So it's just kind of silly to see all this kind of play out in a way that we all know lacks common sense. Nick Carlin Voigt can see it. I can see it. You can see it. Chip Kelly can see it. Chris Hill, the athletic director at Utah, can see it. You better be sure that the presidents and chancellors can see it. They just have their eyes closed because they don't want to see it because they want the revenue. All right, leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide on a happy Friday. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. We've spent a lot of time talking about Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, Cal, those who were left behind. We spent some time talking about the, the strain that will be placed on Olympic sports athletes as Pac 12 teams go off into the Big 12 Conference, go off into the Big 10 Conference in a year. But what we haven't talked about enough is how Oregon and Washington and UCLA and USC will fare in the Big 10 Conference. Clearly, the Big 10 Conference got better. 
by adding four teams that collectively will all be teams that we expect to be in the top 25 at one point or another this season. It's not like they added Northwestern or Purdue or Indiana or Maryland or Rutgers to the equation. So I think, you know, clearly in a year, the top of the Big Ten Conference is going to include those four schools, plus Ohio State, plus Michigan, plus Penn State, and maybe one or two other schools. It's not a bad top seven, top eight when you look at the Big Ten. But what's the better conference this season? Because John Wilner and I on our podcast, Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast, we're talking about, you know, whether or not the Big Ten Conference in football this season is better or worse than the Pac-12. And I think if we went top to bottom, when we took all the Big Ten teams and all the Pac-12 teams and we said, all right, the best 12 against the best 12, and you, you ranked them, you seeded them 1 through 12, I mean, in, in the Big Ten Conference, let's just talk about it from, you know, in the Big Ten East, you've got Ohio State and you've got Michigan and you've got Penn State. Those are probably your one, two, threes uh, as it pertains. Uh, but beyond that, then you're looking at a group that includes schools like Wisconsin, Iowa, um, maybe uh, maybe Michigan State. You know, it, there's a big drop off after that that top tier. In the Pac-12 conference, if you really do think USC is the best team, if you go by the top 25 poll, and then you say, okay, then it's, you know, Washington and Oregon and Utah and Oregon State all the way down to number 18, I think the Pac-12's got five teams that are better than the top five in the Big Ten. Like, you know, Ohio State or Michigan might might make the playoff, but I think the Pac-12 has a better starting five and I think would probably win that series. And I think 1 through 12, I think the Pac-12 would probably win at least seven, if not eight, of those games as you match them up. Because I'm taking, like, the fifth-best team in the Big Ten Conference, and I'm lining them up against Oregon State. I got I got a lot of confidence in what Oregon State can do. You know, if Oregon State's playing Wisconsin or if Oregon State's playing Iowa or Michigan State, I have a lot of confidence. And we'll get to see a little bit of that as Washington travels to play Michigan State this season. And, of course, um, you know, we'll get to see uh, Washington State hosting Wisconsin. But I think right now the Pac-12, and I think the great irony is, as much as we talk about the dismantling of the Pac-12 conference, this season with the quarterbacks that are in the Pac-12, with the depth in those top five, if not top six teams with UCLA being number six, the uh, the talent that is there in the Pac-12, this is not, this is not an issue of the Pac-12 conference uh, finding itself in a position where it's not going to be able to compete uh, and therefore it is dismantling. That's not what happened with the Pac-12 conference. And in fact, football, which two years ago, three years ago, was in this lull, was in a dip, you might argue that that, that sort of set the conference on the path to where it is today. But because the, the teams this season with USC and Oregon and Utah and Oregon State and Washington – I mean, and UCLA, those teams, I would line them up against the Big Ten Conference in a heartbeat and feel good about the top six winning the series. If you took top six against top six, if you make it a two and you're going to put Ohio State and maybe Penn State or Ohio State and Michigan against USC and Oregon, um, you know, you might, you might split those. You might lose that. But if you give me the top five, top six, or you give me the top 12, you go one through 12 in a, in a crossover matchup, I I think the Pac-12 is a deeper, stronger conference than the Big Ten this season. So I think next year in 2024, when those four teams, four of the top six teams in the conference, go over 
to the Big Ten Conference, I think the Big Ten's going to actually, there's more here than just fortifying the meats and adding some television households in Los Angeles and Seattle and adding a brand like Oregon. You're adding four really solid football programs to the mix. And I do think it's going to be harder for a school like UCLA that has probably flown a little under the radar in the Pac-12. You know, they've mattered, but they haven't really mattered since maybe the Terry Donahue era, you know, and Chip Kelly had a good season last year. But UCLA might have a hard time in football and, and might not be able to get through that mess at the top because those top three teams in the Big Ten Conference are, are formidable. But I think UCLA will have a hard time, too, getting above Oregon, getting above USC, getting above Washington on a consistent basis as well. But what about Oregon? What about USC? How are they going to fare when they jump over and and they've got to try to get past Ohio State and they've got to get past you know Penn State and they've got to get past Michigan? I actually think Oregon has probably studied this and Oregon is, is probably well positioned to – uh, attack this in a way that maybe um, Nebraska wasn't when Nebraska made the transition from the Big 12 to the Big 10. I think Nebraska went about it all wrong. And I think Nebraska, while the travel, I think, has, has been in, uh, prohibitive for the Olympic sports, I don't think we can blame the football travel for Nebraska's woes in, in the Big 10 conference. I just don't think they've recruited at a high enough level. I don't think that they have taken care of their brand. And they've slipped. I don't think Oregon will do that. I think Oregon will continue to invest. I'll be really curious to see if Oregon on a week-in and week-out basis can end up with the top of that conference. But I won't be surprised if Oregon is right in there with Ohio State, with Michigan, and with Penn State. I won't. I won't at all. Because I think Oregon is poised to take that kind of step forward. I think it's gonna, it, uh, Oregon's going to have to continue to recruit at the level they're recruiting. I think Dan Lanning and his coaching staff are going to have to take a big step forward because I think they're going to find that, you know, uh, once you get into that conference, Ohio State's got great players. Michigan's got great players. Penn State's got great players. And you know, and then, hey, on your uh, off weeks, you're getting Minnesota and Wisconsin and Iowa. Those are not pushover games either. But I think Oregon will be a top four, top five team in the Big Ten Conference. I think USC will be right there with them as long as Lincoln Riley is the coach. But I'd be really curious to see kind of where Washington fits, too. Will Washington be able to, to crack that top four, top five? And... If the college football playoff, even in an ex- expanded format, results in um, you know only two bids coming from the Big Ten Conference, I think that's going to be a big ask to ask Oregon or Washington or USC to get there with any frequency. I think the the bit the better path is if you know the, if it does reduce to a Power Four and there's an extra at large berth out there, I think you're going to see an awful lot of jockeying from the Big Ten and the SEC to try to figure out who gets three bids who can put three teams into the playoff and collect that extra revenue. That's what it's all about now as you look at it moving forward. And, you know, as much as, you know, the the argument for Oregon, the argument for Washington all along was they value college football playoff access. And it's true. Oregon values that access. As much as that was the argument all along, in the end, what won the day, so to speak, was media rights, money, and stability and a guarantee that they were going to be with the haves when the dust settled. And I think that drove Oregon's decision as much as anything. I, I don't think it was uh, an indictment of playing in the Pac-12. I don't think Oregon was looking over going, you know, we just don't want to be and play these West Coast teams anymore. I don't think it, that had anything to do with it. I think it, it totally had to do with Oregon going, hey, we're taking a 20-year view. We want to make sure we're in well-positioned when this thing uh, blows up again and it goes to a 
a system where, you know, it's just a top 28. We want to actually be in that grouping before there's further consolidation. And be sure that's what's coming on the horizon, the consolidation within the conferences. They've consolidated, knocking out one of the Power Five conferences. Now what the Big Ten and the SEC and others will do is they're going to start like the toothpaste tube is getting squeezed. And schools like Indiana, schools like Vanderbilt, schools like Arkansas in the SEC, schools like um, Maryland and Rutgers, they're going to have to answer questions that Northwestern, are, are they going to be cut in as a full media share member in the next round of the, of the deal? Are they going to be, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to be pushed out of a conference, but I think that they're going to be um, disinvited financially. You know, when Ohio State looks over and says to Northwestern and Indiana, why are we sharing with you equally? Why do you get a full share? You haven't mattered in this conference in years and years and years. And I think the same is going to be said of Vanderbilt. And the same is going to be said of Arkansas. And I think that there's going to be consolidation within those conferences to the point where suddenly you got 28 or 32 or 40 teams that emerge as the, you know, the haves in college football. And I think those are the matchups we're going to get on a weekly basis. We're going to get Michigan State playing LSU. We're going to get Michigan playing USC. We're going to get Oregon playing Ohio State. We're going to get all these crossover games. And then I think we're going to find out um, not this whole thing was a big mistake because I think regionally there's going to be some question on whether or not, you know, will fans in the Pacific Northwest all adopt Oregon and Washington or will the Cougar and the Beaver fans go, no, like we've never had a connection to those teams why would I watch them when they're on? I want to watch my team play. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that's still to be unpacked. All right, I want you to leave it here. We have so much more ahead on today's show. I appreciate you being here for it. Great guests today. Uh, among them, Nick Carlin Voigt, the soccer coach, University of Portland. Dan Lanning, University of Oregon f- uh, football coach. We have the big guests here. We're not home of the Beavers. We're not home of the Ducks. We're not home of the Blazers. You got the home of the truth right here. Is that enough for you? That you know, you're just gonna get it. You're gonna get the truth spit at you. Um, I, we don't need to agree all the time. I, I doubt we will. If we were riding on an airplane, sitting by each other, I'm sure we would find things we disagreed on if if the flight was long enough. I do appreciate that everybody is here and engaged, and you know, and even this debate about you know how many games will Oregon win when they're a member of the conference? How much can they matter in the conference? Those are great debates to have because they're coming sooner than later. You know, July the first, 2024. After this college football season, after a March Madness, we will head into a summer where, you know, the the remaining Pac-12 teams will go run direction and try to do what they're going to do. And then you're going to see uh, Utah and the uh, Arizona schools, Colorado, go off to the Big 12. And how will they fare there? I think, by the way, I think Utah will dominate in the Pac in the Big 12. I think Utah is going to do what Utah does. And I think you know the Big 12 is probably going to look around and go, hey, we're glad to have them because they're a perennial playoff team in that conference. But I think Utah is going to punch some people in the nose in the Big 12 conference, and I think they're going to look up and go, oh, how did they get so good? Uh, and those Utah-BYU rivalry games should be fun as well. But, uh, I, you know, everybody's going to be going separate directions come July 1, 2024, and it'll be really interesting to see how those programs fare as they find new homes. All right, leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth on this great Friday. I appreciate you being along for the ride. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
The Big Ten Conference is doing something that I expect other conferences will follow. They are going to institute player availability reports prior to games. On Fridays, the Big Ten Conference will uh, give you a football player availability report uh, throughout the season. There's an expectation that they're going to mandate the members to do this. I'm very curious to see how many of them actually will. Uh, Again, why do they do this? Well, they do it because uh, there are increased partnerships with uh, gaming companies and gambling entities, and there's been some blowback from from, uh, some of those entities. But the the question becomes, what do they do with non-conference games? And and how, how transparent will the coaches be? Like, you know, we saw a football game last season in which Kyle Whittingham on a Thursday night didn't tell the TV broadcast that is a partner in the broadcast, the Fox FS1 broadcast, he didn't inform them that his starting quarterback was out. And, in fact, uh, Utah was taking the field with a backup quarterback, Bryson Barnes, on the field. And all of a sudden, uh, the graphics were all for Cam Rising, and I know the broadcasters were upset by it, and I know that the uh, television partners caused a big uproar all week. You remember that? Um, And then there was sort of the... uh, the, the debate that raged on afterwards, like uh, what responsibility or what obligation do football coaches have to share with the public, TV broadcast, with gamblers, with other coaches, opposing head coaches, what obligation do they have to share player availability? Well, the Big Ten Conference is trying to figure that out. Uh, the Pioneer Press in, uh, in the Twin Cities, St. Paul Pioneer Press, reporting that the Big Ten Conference will start instituting player availability reports for conference football games. So the members will have to share availability reports two hours before the games. So that is interesting. Uh, Two hours before the game, you're supposed to know who the starting quarterback is and whatnot. And um, I think it'll be really interesting because I remember asking Kyle Whittingham on this show and Chip Kelly on this show and Dan Lanning, uh, you know, hey, you know, where do you stand? Jonathan Smith, where do you stand on that? And, most of the coaches agree that they're not going to share anything that is going to give the opposing team an advantage uh, that they don't have to share. That and you know, and then the question became, well, what do you do if you know Oregon's playing Michigan or you know Washington's playing Michigan State, and what do you do in those cases with a Pac-12 versus a Big Ten team? You know, are you under any obligation to share, or does the Big Ten mandate? Well, it appears the according to this report that it will be for conference games to start. I expect others to follow suit. You know damn well this isn't the conference itself that is is mandating this and instituting it. You know that this is coming from one of their gaming partners who is saying, hey, you're creating some volatility and instability in the market. And frankly, you're giving players on the respective rosters, you're putting them in a position where they become really valuable sources for betters. And so uh, the Big Ten Conference, you know, probably doing this preemptively as they look over at some issues that came up with some uh, Iowa State players who are under fire for wagering on their own games. But, you know, maybe the, the, the prevailing thought here is that, on one hand, as much of an annoyance as this for some coaches or as much as you might get some coaches who are more forthcoming than others, what you really do by instituting this player availability report is you remove the backup defensive back or the, you know, the third-string running back from being in a advantageous position who is sitting on knowledge because he's been in meetings, he's been around the team, he understands as the game is getting ready to kick off who's going to play and who isn't going to play. And we have to think that those things have played a role in some of these scandals as they uh, as they moved on. 
And, you know, league-wide, you know, uh, you know, it'd be interesting. Would it be NCAA-wide? I don't know. But it's a start in the right direction. I think Ohio State already kind of does something similar to this where they're more forthcoming. But I have to think that college football betters today saw this availability report story and went at long last. And, you know, when can that get to the SEC? And when can that get to the Big 12? And when can that get to... Um, when can that get out to the Pac-12? Will it happen this season? I just think it's really interesting to kind of watch that and watch that unfold. Another story that's top of mind for me, I wrote about it this morning at johnconzano.com, are the ongoing overtures from the Mountain West Conference. Gloria Navarez, the Mountain West Conference commissioner, on the road yesterday met with officials at Washington State, unveiled the sales pitch from from the Mountain West Conference. I'm told... Oregon State's going to get the same in-person treatment next week in Corvallis. Might be Monday, might be Tuesday. First half of the week, I definitely expect this. Uh, Gloria Navarez flew to Pullman for Thursday's meeting. She was accompanied by Garnett Stokes, who is the University of New Mexico president. Now, I'm going to get into the details of what they're pitching momentarily. But this also comes as Oregon State and Washington State, the left-behind Pacific Northwest schools, continue to tell each other and league officials that they aim to keep the Pac-4 or the Pac-2 or the Pac-whatever brand and the assets attached to it. Now, the Mountain West Conference is selling the following, and I want you to maybe put yourself in the shoes of Oregon State and Washington State as I unveil this. They're selling the following. The conference's media rights deal with CBS and Fox, you know, expires in 2026. Uh, It provides some linear distribution and also some a near-term window to renegotiate. The AAC's deal, I believe, is six years beyond that window. Uh, I'm told that Gloria Navarez and Garnett Stokes uh, both talked about the favorable geography. They kind of want to own the western part of the United States as a conference. They talked about the cultural fit, how Washington State and Oregon State kind of fit, Boise State, Fresno State. Um, And uh, they also talked about uh, football scheduling solutions. There are some problems looming for 2024. Mountain West Conference could address those problems because it's got an ample number of teams that would be available to fill some uh, vacated slots that the the Pac-2 or the Pac-4 teams are left with. Uh, they also dangled the idea that the league champion in the Mountain West Conference is likely to have access to the expanded college football playoff. Uh, currently, the six highest-ranked conference champions will get an automatic playoff berth beginning in 2024. Now, there's been some speculation that the dismantling of the Pac-12 could reduce that to a top-five scenario. But the Mountain West believes that its conference champion in most years would be well-positioned to get one of those automatic qualifier spots. Uh, Mike Oresco, the American Athletic Conference Commissioner, is expected to pitch Oregon State and Washington State as well. He is overseas in Ireland for the Navy-Notre Dame football game. He will make his presentation via video conference. So think about that. I can't help but wonder. If the Mountain West Conference's personalized face-to-face effort is designed to give the idea that, hey, we're closer, we're nearer, we're more personable, you know, there's already the con- the idea that the AAC is Texas and it's East, you know, it's Texas-based and, you know, Tulane and East Carolina and Memphis, it's like over there. And so on top of that, you've got, you know, Gloria Navarra as the Mountain West Conference Commissioner in person in Pullman in person in Corvallis. Remember, Larry Scott, former commissioner of the conference, he didn't like going to those places. And here is a 
conference commissioner and a president who are showing up in those places to kind of court or woo Oregon State and Washington State. Um, I did reach out to George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 conference commissioner. Um, I did get some clarity on some of the assets that are remaining in the conference. I can give you a little bit of that. It's a little inside baseball. It's a little technical. It's a little boring. But this is important stuff that Oregon State and Washington State and Stanford and maybe Cal were thinking about, you know, as this stuff is all unfolding. But um, the future NCAA tournament payouts, it's totals about $50 million to be paid over the next six years. There is no doubt that the money is staying with any remaining conference members. Now, if Oregon State and Washington State leave for the Mountain West, they don't get that money. And if Stanford and Cal are out, they don't get the money. But the the money stays with conference members. So George Klyovkov told me this morning, quote, I see no reason why they would share any of those payouts with incoming schools, end quote. Meaning that if it's just Oregon State and Washington State, that's $50 million that they will be paid over the next six years that they can put in their pocket or they can use to attract other schools. But keep that in mind. Now, the Pac-12 still owes Comcast $60 million in overpayments from the Larry Scott era. But I am told that the conference's emergency bank account had about $40 million in it. That fund's going to be utilized to help pay that debt, George Klyovkov said. And then any balance that is left over, the $20 million left over, will be settled evenly by each of the 12 schools before they depart. You know, the eight schools that are leaving, they will have to pay any an equal share in that. Oregon, Washington, everybody's going to pay an equal share. So that that debt is uh, supposedly going to be dealt with before the conference, uh, you know, ends as we know it. Um, college football playoff distributions are interesting. Um, there is, uh, you know, there's some sentiment here that Oregon State, Washington State would like to rebuild the pack whatever, into the Pac-8 because uh, they still qualify as a Power 5 school. Now, I drilled down on this and discovered that, you know, the Power 5 conferences are a thing, but the SEC a couple of years ago pushed for the schools, not the conferences, to get the payouts. Remember, they expanded. They added Texas. They added Oklahoma. They wanted the schools to get the payouts, not the conferences, because they were expanding. Well, that means that Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, and Cal are all entitled to a Power 5 conference share in the next two payouts for the expanded playoff. Now, there's some, there's some legal argument here that if they added four schools to the Pac-4 and made it a Pac-8, that they could still make the argument that it's a Power 5 conference. There might be a legal question there, but there's a precedent for it. Because remember, the Big 12 added four schools a number of schools, including BYU, and then argued, hey, they're, they're Power Fives, and they got that distinction. I'm told that the Pac-12 assets include equivalency payments that are due to the conference from the Rose Bowl settlement. Remember the Rose Bowl went off to become car- part of the college football playoff? Well, this season, the Pac-12 will get $50 million split among the 12 conference schools in exchange for giving the Rose Bowl to the playoff. Now, there's another $50 million coming in 2024 and another $50 million coming in 2025. Now, there seems to be some legal wrangling going on when it comes to that $100 million that will come in after the schools depart. Oregon, Washington will be gone to the Big Ten. The Four Corners schools will be gone to the Big 12. What happens to the $100 million? Is it, does it go to the remaining members of the conference, or is it still divided among the 12 original schools? 
I'm told to stay tuned on that front because um, it's it's not as obvious what would happen there. It, you know, it seems to me that it would belong to the conference, but, you know, I'm not an attorney on this front. Uh, regardless, it just does appear that there is a whole bunch of stuff that still needs to be unpacked. There is, uh, you know, a lot sitting in front of Oregon State and Washington State, and they are, you know, currently you know, plotting their path and trying to figure out, and I'm told that they want to be able to say out loud before they kick off Sunday's football game in week one kind of what their direction is and where they're headed. Uh, Oregon State and Washington State clearly left behind. It just shows you the value of brand, doesn't it? shows you the value of winning, and it shows you the value of brand. Those things matter when it comes to college football. Like, I can get in the weeds and talk all I want about payouts and rebuilds and all, you know, the ratings and TV households. If you don't have brand and you don't have success on the football field, you're in trouble, especially if you're in Corvallis or you're, or a place like Pullman. So what becomes apparent to me is that in the next couple of few years, as Oregon State, Washington State plot their path, they've got to focus on investment in football continued, and they've got to focus on building their brand and improving their brand. If they don't, they're going to be permanently left behind. Well, he's just a week away from his season opener, University of Oregon football coach Dan Lanning in season two. How has he changed? Stick around and find out. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Week one is just around the corner. Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach, in his second season. I heard a co- I heard you give an interview, and you said, you know what comes next. That's what's different in year two. What do you mean by that, what comes next? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not necessarily that you read the book before, but it's, um, you know, year one, there's, there's the unexpected that you can't get really prepared for. And there's nothing really that catches you necessarily uh, completely off guard. But when you can anticipate the unexpected, that's, uh, I think, it makes things go smoother. So, uh, obviously, you know, hey, week two is coming up, week three is coming Like, you're prepared for those moments and you're one. Um, but just being able to anticipate some of those things that you didn't necessarily know was going to be uh, on the docket, I think, is one thing that's that's got me ready for this year. Give me an idea, because I know in the NFL or the NBA that, you know, there's a group of coaches that are focused on the here and now, and you might have scouts looking into a week ahead, two weeks ahead. How far ahead can you get with other parts of the operation while you – simultaneously focus on hey week one game one we got to focus on us well it's kind of exa- exactly what you said you have some people in the organization that kind of get a jump ahead we we do a summer scouting report on every single opponent we face each year so we've actually kind of gone through and did some preliminary work on each team um before it really comes up and we kind of go back and you know address that take a look at that see what we see um that still carries over and holds true and then you have a couple coaches that work ahead but you know within each week you really want to focus on the opponent that you're on. I've been looking at billboards differently now, and I, <laughs> I got to know, like, okay, so I think it's cool. It's great for Bo, gets him some exposure. But I have to think that, that for the program in general, when you get a presence in New York City, a presence in Dallas, Texas, and you get that kind of splash that there are kids around the country that are watching that, and that just helps the brand and the halo effect of the brand in all. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I think, you know, I think back not that long ago, Kayvon Thibodeau was sitting on ESPN and he's telling people it's not a facade. It's re- it's the real deal. The connections, 
the opportunities that you have at Oregon, they're real. And I just think that's a great example um, of when you come here, you're going to get an opportunity to be, you know, recognized not just at a local level but at a national level, and, and that's a great example of it. Will Stein and Bo Nix, how's that going? Yeah, really well. You know, I think they work really well together. Obviously, um, both of them have been really good. And uh, now with those guys in a collaborative effort, I think it uh, it's going to be really successful. I'm uh, excited to see what they do. I, I know that, you know, sometimes in week one you, you don't trot everything out. you got a week two game to think about, too, or, you know, that's looming. But, you know, how much of Will Stein's offense – you know, will we be able to see? Will it look different than what Kenny Dillingham was doing, or will it just look like you know it's a uh, it's a relative of what Kenny was doing? Like, give us an idea. Yeah, ultimately, I was looking for somebody to fit what we do, right? And Will, his vision, what he's uh, done in the past, it really fits really well with what we do. Um, but it has some wrinkles, right? It has a couple things here and there that I think can be really good elements of it. So I think when you watch it, you'll say, okay, that reminds me of. Uh, some similarities that you saw last year from Oregon, but every once in a while you might see something and say, okay, I didn't see that before. Uh, and that's, you know, where Will and the rest of the offensive staff's creativity is, has shown up. Your kids, are they ready for school? They're, they are not. They're ready for another summer. Yeah, these guys, uh, they're, they're not anxious to get back to school, but uh, I think their mom's ready for them to get back to school. <laughs> I relate to that. I know that. That's going on over here. But I have one kid, one of the daughters, Probably not different than your group. One of them, you know, she's more she's more studious. She's, you know, she's eager to get back to the classroom. And the other one's, like, sleeping in going, nope, not going to happen. You know, <laughs> you know how that goes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where were you like as a kid? Did you want to get back or did you enjoy the summer too much? Uh, I, I think I kind of liked school. I think I was kind of a weird guy when it came to that. I don't know. Probably when I got into high school, I wasn't. I was excited about it. The thing about school is, I mean, sports are coming along. That's what I enjoyed, right? Yeah. So, like, you want to play football, you want to play basketball. That's the part I enjoyed. Um, I wouldn't say I enjoyed, you know, the student aspect as much. But, yeah, I probably enjoyed, you know, getting back to action. Were you surprised when, you know, you got asked some questions after the scrimmage, and I thought, you know, I didn't think they were great questions, but everyone said, oh, he's so testy. I had people in, a, like, Utah media saying, is Dan Lanning feeling the pressure? And I was like, it wasn't that bad. I went back and listened to it, and I just thought you were just basically wanting to say that the defense was better, and let's move on and talk about something else. <laughs> I I, uh, I guess I really didn't realize it was such a big deal. But, yeah, that was – yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't realize that was it's, – it's a great example of everybody's ready for football season. Yes. I can't find anything to write about, I guess, right? I, I think so. Um, yeah. And, and it's yeah. the same damn questions we talked on media day, like all day long. You get asked about the defense. Will the defense have an identity? How do you take a defensive step forward? And you get the same question over and over. At some point, you, you know, you just want to see your team, uh, you know, line up and, uh, and play a game against somebody. Yeah, well, you know, at the end of the day, they're doing their job. No, no uh, hard feelings. I certainly wasn't testy. I just didn't know what uh, else to really hop into beyond they played better, and I'm 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 not one for revealing great details about what we got going on in our organization if I don't think it's a benefit to the program. So sometimes that's probably going to rub people the wrong way. But yeah. the thing that I always have to decide is what's going to make Oregon better, and if does it help Oregon win games, and if it doesn't, um, then I'm probably not going to share it. And uh, hopefully at the end of the day, people understand that. What's your first play against Portland State? <laughs> no, just kidding. No. Yeah, flea flicker, double reverse. That's what we're coming out with. Why not? Yeah. All right, I got a football question for you, though. Uh, Popo Amavoy. Um, 
Yeah. He comes back, and I'm curious if his return, does he does he help the younger guys because they get to see a guy who's kind of been through it in his position? Like, is there some osmosis going on? Well, I think the biggest thing that, that uh, where Popo can make a huge impact with our young guys and where he has already is when they can see him do it. Right, because sometimes you're trying to describe something to a player, and um, you know some of our coaches we can't maybe display it as well as the actual player can, right? But Popo's one of those guys that can go out there and execute at a high level. So when you have a guy like that that can really show by example and lead by example, that speaks volumes. And uh, he certainly earned uh, the respect of a lot of guys in our program. You know, we we all hope that he's able to stay healthy because I think if he is, he's got a chance to be a big impact player for our team. Casey Rogers, does he get? Does he get in better positions because Popo's there? Does he get like in a three tech and get a get a better pass rush because he's got that guy beside him? I think everybody. When, when you have um, a defensive lineman that can you know be a game changer inside, you know I think that creates one on ones outside. That creates uh, better uh, better blitz angles for your backers. I mean I just think across the board it's going to make you cover better in the back end when you have somebody that can win up front. And um, yeah, having great D line play is going to make everybody around. Uh, those those players better best godfather movie two why uh storyline i mean I, I, and i think that's where you really get to see um my man patino like come full circle right like that's where you see i don't know it, it seems like he's all in at that point right like he's made the complete transition right and i, and I, I remember marlon brando's not into is he like he doesn't he doesn't appear in that one. Well, you're now you're gonna make me have to like go back no. and watch him close. Yeah, you know. Um, but you but, know, yeah, you, I don't do you think know? So. Do you know how much Pacino made for Godfather Two? I looked it up the other day because I, I was curious, no. like, just to see. Okay, so in Godfather One, he made thirty-five thousand. In Godfather Two, he made five hundred thousand. You know, and really? and he got ten percent of the film's profits in perpetuity, so he's still getting paid. And so Pacino got wow. a he got a huge cut. He Credit to his agent. Yeah, that's impressive. Well done. Like that. Probably had Jimmy Sexton as his agent. Who knows? Uh, we're, talk- <laughs> we're talking to Dan. Well, if he did, I'm sure it worked out for him. <laughs> we're talking to Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach. I won't keep you long. Um, all right, give us an idea. Um, you know, you've scrimmaged. You've obviously seen stuff you don't want to share with the public, but give me an idea of what you're looking for in game one, week one, just from a fundamental level, so fans who are watching the game can kind of go. Hey, uh, I'm seeing what Dan Lanning was talking about. Yeah, you know, what I hope is all the things in in between snaps, right, is really, really smooth, right? Smooth communication. We're able to line up, uh, get in and out of formations, get the plays in quickly, operationally, you know, operate a really high level, not have any of those miscues. You know, one thing you always look for are, like, pre-snap and post-snap penalties. Like, there's going to be some aggressive penalties that happen within the whistles, Right, um, a guy going to make a play on the ball and it's a pass interference or uh, a lineman driving his feet and it turns into a holding. That's going to happen from time to time. But what we don't want to have is you know the ducks beating the ducks with with us doing things that have nothing to do with in between the whistles and in between the play. Last year you got Georgia in that opener and it was it was rough and it was probably not ideal for a first time first year coach and to open in that environment and the and basically a road game against Georgia. How different. Or is this feel, and then did, did you learn something in that game or that you can carry with you, or do you learn something every game, I guess? 
Yeah, you certainly learn something every game. But, yeah, I, I certainly learned some stuff uh, in that game that I will probably forever carry with me. Um, you know, ultimately, there's nothing like the first time, right, and get an opportunity to go out there. But I think our team responded really well. You know, for me, I told our staff today, like when we do our pregame routine, like I want it to be sharper and better than we ever did it before, right? It needs to be sharper and better than we did the very first time. And uh, I can go back to that pregame routine against Georgia and some things that didn't go right uh, in that moment that we learned from. And we're not going to make that same mistake again. And it might seem simple to, you know, some people are like not, you know, kind of trivial to be worried about the pregame routine, but that part, you know, matters to me. So there's a lot of notes we took from game one. Um, that I think that we've learned from and will carry over in the future. Was that like just procedurally things weren't moving and it became a distraction? Or when you say things didn't go right, what do you mean? Yeah, like the band's trying to take the field and we're still warming up. Like we weren't timed right. <laughs> like there's a lot of pieces. Like that's a great a great example of game one. Like, okay, wait, I'm going to remember this forever. Like we're, we're not even off the field on time, yeah. right? So, um, but you got to figure that out, and uh, we figured some stuff out. Um, and luckily, last year we were able to figure it out pretty quick, and uh, responded and had a, a good season. But we, you know, if you're not learning, you're, you're say I think Jalen Hurd said that after uh, last season, you're either winning or you're learning, right? Mm-hmm. So we always want to be learning from you know moments and and. Our, our games, and I think that's a great opportunity. I love that. The band's there, and you're like, hey, the, re- the whole reason the band's there is the football game. Don't they know that? Like, you, you need to wait, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you I think, right? I'm always, uh, like, when they do the halftime show and it's extended like that, I'm always going, hey, we do, do they remember there's a football game? That's the whole reason everybody's here. But I guess, you know, everybody's on a on a time as well. Okay, Dan Lanning with us. All right, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you loose here, but uh, give me, like, you know, in your weekend before your first game, how much of it is football? How much do you get a chance to exhale? Because it will come at you like a blur week one, week two. I mean, there's just a schedule you get on until you get to bye week. But will you exhale it all before this before the season? Or are you jumping right into this now? Yeah, we're all in. I mean, we've been we've been all in really since we've gotten back for uh, camp. But you find the moments within each day to hit the reset button, right? Take the deep breath, um, you know take some time to meditate, think back to what, you know, what do you want the day to look like, right, and kind of hit the reset button throughout the day. So uh, that's something I feel like I've gotten better at, of figuring out when those moments are, not necessarily to check out, but to refocus and recenter. And uh, that's certainly what I'll be doing going into that. If I'm able to catch a, a game or two uh, later that night, I'll, I'll have the TV on and be able to catch that. If we're still in prep mode, then I'll still be prepping. If you're watching a game on TV, do you turn the sound off so you just watch the football or do you listen? No, I normally have a sound on. I don't know how close I listen, but I normally have a sound on. All right, and, and I'm terrible with the meditation thing. Are you literally, like, turning the lights down and going quiet and putting on no, some music? No, or... it's just a mindfulness. It's just a, it's a level of focus. Okay. Now, like, I, I'll put on, like, a certain type of uh, music or uh, sound and uh, just try to, you know, be where I'm at. Take wow. a deep breath, not be in the future, not be in the past, but be present. And uh, conscientious about your breath. You know, really just try to get in the flow state. It's starting to sound like Buddha or something yeah. right here, right? No, I mean, it's I'm good. speaking a different language. Get yeah, in the no, flow state. I'm going to do that. Get in the flow state. All right. Yeah. That's my goal for the weekend. All right. Dan Lanning, thank you. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate you, man. And I will see you next week. Thanks, John. Appreciate you, man. Have a good one. Okay. There he goes. Dan Lanning, University of Oregon, second year head coach. I remember the questions last year as they were approaching that Georgia game. And, um, you know, I did have some questions about the coaching staff and 
whether or not they would in year one be able to hit the ground running. And I do think that some of those questions held up last season in that there was some strategy. Um, there were some strategy decisions that on one hand I didn't mind. Like I don't mind going for it, a coach going for it on fourth down. I don't mind a coach telling his players that I believe in you um, and I have faith in you, especially in a season like last season. Let's face it, when they lose that Georgia game in the opener, I think it was really difficult for the rest of the country to ignore and to forget what happened in the opening game, that it was such a knockout. It was like seeing 13 seconds into a heavyweight championship bout, somebody just get their, get, just get clobbered and knocked out. And it, you, it's hard to unsee that. And I think that held up for the majority of the year. I remember having Reese Davis, the ESPN uh, host on the show, and he was saying that he couldn't, he, he couldn't get that image of Georgia boat racing Oregon in the opener out of his mind. And I think it was a hard thing for the rest of the country to kind of ignore and get past. And I think for that reason, in a weird way, maybe it took some of the pressure off the Oregon coaching staff as they were making decisions on fourth down from their own 29-yard line against Washington or fourth down against Oregon State and going for it in situations where they might not go for it if there was truly a college football playoff berth that was on the line in those situations. So on that hand, I don't mind a coach being aggressive, and I particularly don't mind a coach being aggressive when you've got a player like Bo Nix on your side. That said, it's kind of hard to ignore the idea that fourth down and whatever from your own 29, when you don't get it, um, it's a bad look. And so I kind of am wondering what Oregon, you know, and how this coaching staff will look and feel different in season number two. And maybe it is just as easy as, Dan Lanning and some others noting that, you know, they've been in this situation. They kind of know the flow of things. His thing where he was pointing out the procedural, uh, the you know, the the mess of here you are in game one, you're trying to finish your warm-up, and here comes the band. They're trying to get on the field, and you've got literally a distraction of a marching band that is saying, hey, it's our turn to be on the field. Why are you still on the field? I mean, it's just stuff like that that you look back at and you go, Okay, yeah, that was his first time, first game, first time head coach, and you know, forty-five to three or whatever Georgia does to Oregon in that situation doesn't, uh, you know, leaves leaves that taste in your mouth. They won't have that this season, this year, with Portland State as that opener at Autzen Stadium. Of course, um, you know, everybody is kind of looking at that and saying, okay, that's going to be a W for Oregon. I'll just be curious to see what Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, does because he does do some squirrely things. In games like that, what what Barnum tries to do to to uh, give Oregon something to think about, and and uh, in particular, I am interested to see a little bit of Will Stein, but I I don't I'm with people who think we're not going to see a whole bunch of what Oregon's offense is going to be until week two when they go to Texas Tech. They'll be in Lubbock. I'll be in Lubbock with them. I'll be covering it for JohnConzano.com, and uh, I will be there on the scene at Texas Tech in week two. Next week, this show is going on the road. It's going to Salt Lake City in the middle of the week for the Thursday night game at Rice-Eccles Stadium where Florida and Utah will be meeting. And who in the heck is going to play quarterback for Utah? Well, we'll find out like 10 minutes before kickoff probably. And then I'll be on to the Bay Area where Oregon State will open their season with DJ Uyunglele, who we heard from earlier in the show 
Uh, he will be uh, at center, under under center, or at the quarterback position, however you want to say it, for Oregon State. And it'll be a lot of fun, I think, to see Oregon State open their season and finally get to talk about playing some football. Good stuff from Dan Lanning. Great interviews on today's show. Nick Carlin Voigt, University of Portland uh, men's soccer coach, was fantastic. And DJ Uyungalele, the quarterback at Oregon State, fantastic. And Eric Reveno, the assistant basketball coach at Oregon State, just fantastic perspective talking about you know the landscape of college athletics and the roles of the presidents in what we have seen play out in the last uh, couple of few weeks. Really interesting. All right, we got a couple segments still left in the show. I've got so much more to talk about, including we have some college football games that are going to be taking place here in Week 0. We'll talk about those, plus the Week 1 matchups. I give my top three Pac-12 Week 1 matchups that I'm looking forward to. I know it's a week early, but I'll talk about them coming up. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Appreciate that you're here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. There's only one Week 0 game in the Pac-12. It is uh, San Jose State visiting USC. And uh, that, of course, um, that game taking place tomorrow. And so it'll be nice to see a football game, I guess, and see people running around. But I want to peek ahead if I can. (laughs) People running around. Players running around tackling other players. Um, It'll be be nice to see football and, and college football starting after all the talk about everything that has nothing to do with football. I, I frankly am ready for that. Uh, I don't know about you. Um, but week one of the Pac-12 schedule, I, I I have been looking at this master schedule for weeks and weeks and weeks. And by the way, the Saturday game with San Jose State and USC is going to be interesting, to especially to Oregon State. Jonathan Smith and Oregon State are going to want to peek at that San Jose State game and maybe get an idea of what they will be up against. They do not play USC in the regular season, so if Oregon State and USC meet, this season, it will be in Las Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game. So, keep an eye on San Jose State USC as it pertains, like through the prism of Jonathan Smith and DJ Uyungalele, who we heard from on today's show already. But the three biggest games that I am interested in and interested in talking about in this segment uh, don't have to do with Oregon or Oregon State in Week One. The three most interesting games in the Pac-12 conference and Week One are as follows in my mind. I'm going to start with the Thursday night game. In Salt Lake City, Rice Eccles Stadium, Utah playing Florida. We heard from Josh Newman, uh, who covers the Utah football beat. He laid out the quarterback conundrum that Kyle Whittingham, the head coach at Utah, and Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator, are facing in their Week 1 matchup. Uh, Brandon Rose, uh, backup quarterback, is out. Cam Rising has not yet been cleared to play. May have been cleared today, may be cleared tomorrow, but still there's some question about whether Rising will be able to go in this game against Florida. And so it's largely been Nate Johnson and Bryson Barnes talked about. And Bryson Barnes, more experienced. Nate Johnson, more upside. Uh, Josh Newman talked about that combination. So then it becomes Barnes versus Johnson. Uh, Barnes had a slight lead there. Okay, Kyle Whittingham said on Monday that Nate Johnson has really taken advantage of the increased reps and the increased opportunity since Brandon Rose is out. But I think the trust, I think ultimately, I think the trust in the experience Bryson Barnes has gives him the advantage in this battle versus Johnson. Johnson has all the upside. Johnson's 
electric. Johnson has a much higher ceiling than Bryson Barnes. Long term, yeah, I'd probably go Nate Johnson, but if you're talking about one game, this opener, this game, who is going to play the quarterback, the safe, rational move to me is to go with Bryson Barnes if Ryzen ultimately cannot go. Could could you foresee Kyle Whittingham deciding, yeah, I'm going to start Bryson Barnes, but I'm going to bring in Nate Johnson and let him play situationally? Oh, 100%. I, I, would, I would put money on that. Uh, you know, you saw late last season, you know, there, there was a, a package installed for Nate Johnson. Look, Nate Johnson's first two collegiate touches were a nine-yard touchdown run against Stanford and in, uh, an eight-yard touchdown run against Stanford. Following week, they throw him in there, you know, second and something inside the red zone. His one and only collegiate pass is a 16-yard touchdown pass. So if Bryson Barnes starts, there will still be a role for Nate Johnson. He's, you know, when I say when I say he's athletic and capable, this kid ran like 10, 5 of the 100 meters in the state of California, finished in the top uh, three or four last year in the state, or two years ago in the state of California in the 100-meter dash. He, he's going to play, okay? He's too, uh, he's too capable. He's too athletic. Uh, there's too much, again, there's too much ceiling. There's too much upside. I mean, I could see, I could certainly see a situation where, like, between the 20s or between the 25s, it's Bryson Barnes. And then once you get into, like, money territory inside the 20 inside the 10 i could see them going to nate johnson one way or the other nate johnson is going to play okay it's just a matter of will he start or will he come in in relief of barnes in a situational capacity so i'll be really curious to see how kyle whittingham andy ludwig utah how they react in that scenario and and can they macgyver it against an sec team and what will be a big game for the pac-12 conference playing against an sec opponent rice echoes stadium is worth something that point spread is gone from Utah being a nine or nine and a half point favorite all the way down pushing towards four, maybe three and a half by the time the game kicks off if Cam Rising doesn't play. But that is one of my big games to watch in week one. Second big game to watch involves Coach Prime. Colorado's opening the the uh, documentary series on Amazon Prime by playing at TCU in a road game that is huge. And I've seen some hysteria about, uh, you know, some people predicting that Colorado could win that game, some people predicting that Colorado's going to, you know, upset special, all of that stuff. I think it's a lot of hype designed to get um, eyeballs to that game on Fox. But uh, I think by and large what we are, uh, most of us are expecting in that game is a bloodbath. But I'll be looking at Colorado up front. Like, even if that game turns into a blowout, I just want to see, is it because Colorado isn't handling business at the point of attack? Are they having problems with physicality? How does Shadur Sanders look at quarterback? Um, how do the you know the uh, the procedural stuff that Dan Lanning has talked about on today's show with you know the pregame and lining up and having uh, you know the discipline and personal fouls and you know uh, procedure calls? I mean, are they, do they struggle with that stuff or do they have it together and locked down in week one? I'll be paying attention to that. But listen to the roundtable discussion on CBS as Randy Cross and. A couple of other panelists this week talked about Colorado TCU. Listen to the reaction when Cross picks Colorado to upset TCU, in fact. And I love Randy Cross, former 49er, Randy Cross, guest on this show. But I think he's got this one all wrong. I'm not going to discount what Deion Sanders is going to do at Colorado. And I think it gets started with a win, an upset win at TCU. Okay, Randy. Going to Vegas with you, man. No, uh, listen, new sheriff in town there in Colorado. Everyone knows about that. A new identity, new coach and all of that. 
How long will it take for that to take hold? That's the big question mark. I think they show up and, and they, they're going to be competitive, but for how long? Really, uh, it takes a while when you have those many changes. But I'm, which I'm not going to doubt him, but I doubt they win this ball game. I'm going with TCU. And they've got some new faces on the offensive side of the ball as well. Yeah, I'm with TCU as well. I'm impressed with, with Coach Prime. And if you ever spent any time with him, you know that he's a different guy. And he's a disciplinarian. He is a, he's a, he's a man, the guy doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't curse. I mean, he, is, he runs a tight ship. Time to go. I want to respect. But. <laughs> The thing about TCU, man, the thing that came through last year they proved to me is the quality of their depth, how they were able to weather the season, replace people due to injury, and then play that well and show up in those meaningful games at the end of the year. To me, you've proved your quality of depth. So no, no Kendra Miller, no Max Duggan, no problem. Yeah. I don't see it. I don't see Colorado being in that game, and I think it's going to be the kind of season that reminds people how difficult it is to take a team that was – uh, you know, it was completely overwhelmed last year. Total start over. And I know you have the transfer portal available to you, but there is depth, and then there is real depth. And Colorado doesn't have either one of those things, especially up front and on the defensive line. And I think TCU, and I think Nebraska, and I think Colorado State, and I think Oregon, and I think USC are going to make Coach Prime realize pretty quickly uh, five weeks in that he needs to get into the portal and get more depth next season. So that is game number two that is on my radar. Game number three that is on my radar in week one in the Pac-12 conference is Washington. The Huskies, who were playing the best football of anybody at the end of last season, best offensive football, fantastic football, they will open the season at home against Boise State. I'm interested in this game for two reasons. One, I want to see can Washington just sort of pick up where they started, where they left off last year. Can they start this year where they left off? And secondarily, I want to see Boise State a little bit. There's been all this talk about, you know, should Boise State be in that Pac-12 discussion if there's a possible rebuilt Pac-12, Pac-2, Pac-4? We've been talking about that for several weeks now. And, you know, the only reason that you would ever include Boise State in any kind of plan would be to uh, because of the football, right? It's not their academics. It's not their television households. There's only 517,000 TV households in all of Idaho. It would be because of the blue field and the brand of Boise football. And does Andy Avalos have this team playing well enough to even consider them as a uh, possible someday member of a conference that you would want to rebuild? Or or is that thing, did that thing end when Chris Peterson really left Boise State and it just kept going for a little while uh, under Brian Harson? Uh, I'll be curious to see how Boise State looks in this game because at the beginning of last year, were all these questions about Andy Avalos and whether or not Boise State uh, could right the ship. He went out, he changed his offensive coordinator, he got some help, and Boise State was really good down the stretch. How will they look in a season opener at Husky Stadium against a really good Pac-12 team, a team that some people are picking to get to the playoff? So I'll be really curious to watch that. On media day in Las Vegas, I had one of my best conversations with Michael Penix Jr., the Washington quarterback, and I asked him how much it hurt for Washington to not get to Las Vegas in the conference championship game. Is it possible that they're entering this season chip on their shoulder? I also asked him about his tattoos. And I thought it was really interesting. And his comfort with Kalen DeBoer. Listen here. Yeah, it hurt a lot. But um, we left it in somebody else's hands, and, and we can't do that. You know, we yeah. got to win We got to win all our games so that uh, it, it's a no question for us. So um, we, we still going to remember, and we still got that chip on our shoulder. Yeah. Uh, the comfort that you have with Kalen DeBoer, how valuable is that when it comes to your success? 
Um, you know, it's very valuable. He, he's mainly the reason why I came all the way out to Washington. And, um, you know, as far as my success, you know, he's he's the one that, that created the offense that we have. But, you know, he allows Coach Ryan Grubb to call it. You know, he's been with Coach Grubb for 12-plus uh, years now. Yeah. And um, so, so they've been together. So um, it, it, they just make me feel so comfortable back there. And, you know, I know every time I, I take a snap, uh, I, I have opportunity to, to do something great. Your uh, tattoo on your right bicep, Interstate 75. Yeah. That a nod to home? Yeah, I-75. I stayed yeah. off I-75. Yeah. Did uh, any other tattoos? What? Are, tell me the meaning of what, what do you have going there. Yeah, I got Tampa Bay Tech. That's my high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some palm trees to show Florida. Yeah. I got an outline of the, uh, the, the state of Florida. I got a street that. This isn't a street I grew up on, but yeah. this is a street where State Street. Yeah, State Street is a street that basically made me into the to the athlete I am today. You know, yeah. that's where we played football on the road, yeah. basketball. We did all the sports on State Street. Yeah. Um, this one's for my friends. I got my mom's name. Yeah. I got my favorite verse, Jeremiah, uh, twenty nine eleven. Um. And yeah, that's about it. I got some stuff on my chest and my uh, stomach too. It's interesting. When? Did, what was your first tattoo? Uh, probably the ones on the back of my arm, my initials. Yeah. yeah. I was about 17. Yeah. Was that too young to get a tattoo, or do you? Nah, it, it wasn't too young. I know people that got. Yeah. Got it when they were 13. Yeah. I found Michael Penix Jr. to be extremely likable. It was really uh, an interesting conversation, a good conversation. And I know I told this story on Media Day back in Vegas, but when he arrived. At the table, he was very distracted with, uh, in my radio booth, he was very distracted with um, something that was going on on his phone. And he was getting, he was FaceTiming and he kept, you know, was gesturing. And it turned out that it was his little brother who is 16 years old, who he just gave his car to. And his brother was concerned because one of the warning lights went off on the car. And Michael Penix Jr. was trying to tell him, like, show me the light, like, put the, put the camera on the light so that I can see it. And it was just, a, it was a charming moment. Uh, with two uh, brother, older brother, younger brother, and a car involved in it, and and uh, I didn't mind observing that and seeing that. It was really kind of a cool thing to see. All right, so those are my three games: Boise State, Washington for Week One. Boise State, Washington. Uh, I'll obviously want to see Coach Prime in Colorado and just see what they're going to be about this season. I think we'll get a big indication there. And of course, the Utah game. Can they MacGyver it on Thursday night? Oregon will be home at Autzen Stadium. A week from Saturday against Portland State. We'll be all over that next week on the show. And Oregon State will be on the road in week one at San Jose State in a rare Sunday afternoon game. 12.30 kickoff in the Bay Area against San Jose State on Sunday. So it'll be interesting to see them, uh, you know, San, San Jose State and Oregon State on the stage alone on that Sunday. So that'll be a lot of fun to check that out as well. All right, some parting thoughts coming up on the Bald Face Truth if you missed any of the interviews on today's show, I suggest you go back and grab them. DJ Uyunglele, Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, Eric Reveno, the assistant basketball coach at Oregon State, uh, Nick Carlin Voigt, University of Portland soccer coach. Uh, great interviews on today's show. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth. <laughs> Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, 
talk about what's going on in Williamsport, Pennsylvania before the week ends here on this great Friday. Uh, Little League World Series going on. You know, the annual rite of passage where oversized kids from America put on Little League uniforms and compete against allegedly um, kids who are 10, 11, and 12 from other international c- countries. And for those of you who don't know how the Little League World Series tournament works, um, the teams from America compete in one bracket, and the international teams compete in the other bracket, and the two winners meet for the championship um, uh, on Sunday in the uh, in the 20-team tournament. Now, there is a team from California that has caught my attention, the El Segundo All-Stars. They're in the U.S. championship game. They, uh, they beat the uh, team from Seattle 2-1 to one on Thursday night, last night. And uh, they will get a rematch with the Southwest champions from Needville, Texas, on Saturday to determine who advances to Sunday's um, championship game. And um, El Segundo's got a player, Luis Lappi, who's hit a bunch of home runs. And there was a weird thing that happened in a game here, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, where they were playing against Tennessee. And I want to play a little bit of the audio from that. That one to right. As Lappy hits a home run that supposedly puts El Segundo up 5-3, to three, but as he rounds the bases, the catcher for the opposing team claims that he doesn't touch home plate. And Lappy missed home plate. We're looking at the first base umpire, and he's like, huh? I didn't see that. They appeal, and you're going to hear the coach uh, basically... Uh, walking out to the mound to tell his pitcher how to handle the appeal. He's very calm and rational about it. Take a deep breath and calm down. Everybody, stop and take a deep breath. You're going to step on the mound. Let him get in the box. Then you're going to step off, and you're going to tell the home home plate umpire you would like to appeal home plate that he missed for home plate. Then you're going to throw it to Corbin, to the home plate. To the umpire, you're going to say, I want to appeal home plate that he did not touch home. Then you're going to throw it to Corbin, he's going to touch home plate. Okay? Relax. Well, it's a unique situation. Let's hope they, the Carter does it right. And let's hope they get the call right, which likely would lead them to say, we need to make an umpire review on it. He called him out? He called him out for missing the plate? Yeah, Bowley's going to come out and say, we've got to look at that. First base umpire calls Lappy out, and then they go to replay. El Segundo asks for a replay. The replay shows that Lappy, in fact, his heel does touch home plate, and so they rule that it's a home run. And then the team from Tennessee does something else, and again, they're facing elimination in this game. Then they start appealing second base, the appeal of second base. Now, Anna, i got to ask you a question. You're in the studio here. These are... 10, 11, 12-year-old kids playing at Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Little League World Series. Is it Bush League, the team from Tennessee, appealing Lappy touching home plate or not? And if not, is it Bush League that they then subsequently try to appeal that he didn't touch second base? Like, what are they going to do? Go around the horn? Uh, It's a little Bush League. I mean, let the kid have the home run. It seemed pretty clear that he did you know, his foot touched the plate. I don't know how that was called 
uh, as an out at all. So I, I don't get that part of it. What I do like is how calm the coach is for Tennessee talking to the kids. Obviously, the kids, the adrenaline is going. For anybody that's seen the video, the catcher is standing on home plate, stomping on it with one foot. And I react to that because in that moment, I'm looking at the passion of these little boys playing their hearts out. And you can tell, you know, they're just doing whatever they can to stay in the game. So I credit the coach for the way he spoke to his team. He told them to take a breath. Everybody needs to calm down. I think that's a great coaching moment. As for, you know, especially this questioning, the second base uh, call, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess it, it does feel a little Bush League, like taking away from the moment for the team from El Segundo. I think it's totally Bush League. And I think it, it flies in the face of, like, everything that we try to teach kids about youth sports and you know, being a good winner and being a good loser, the kid hit a bomb. And and Lewis Lappy has been dominant in this in this tournament. And he's six foot one, by the way, twelve year old kid, six foot one. Um, and you know, the LA Times uh, reporter Eric Sondheimer was tweeting about him, and I was like, what twelve year old kid in America is getting the LA Times prep reporter tweeting? Like, we can't wait for this kid to get to high school and and cover him. But um, I think it's bush league. I think it's bush leagues both ways because he hits the home run. It's a reach that you're trying to argue that he doesn't touch home plate. The first base umpire calls him out, I suspect, because if in doubt he's out, we can always overturn it on a replay, and he didn't want to be wrong. Because his first glance was he was he didn't appear to be sure about the call. And then when they went to replay, it's evident on the replay that the kid's heel definitely came down on home plate. But then I think subsequent, like I don't care how calm that coach is, that subsequent second appeal at second base is just horse bleep. It's it's everything that's wrong. It's like, we can't beat you on the field, so we're going to try to get you on a technicality. Like, what's next? Do you bring an injunction from a lawyer out of the stands to say, you know, he's too tall to be playing Little League Baseball? Like, you got beat on the field. Take the loss. If, uh, if your kids can't come up in the next inning and come up with two or three runs, you're out of the tournament. They didn't do that. I hated this. I hated that second appeal. I didn't like the first appeal hated the second appeal, and I just don't think that that's something that I would ever appeal as a Little League baseball coach, and I think it flies in the face of sportsmanship. Like, hey, we just got beat. The kid just went and hit a bomb off us to put his team ahead 5-3, and instead of trying to get him out on the field, we're going to try to get him out by what? That it, You know, as he's celebrating, he misses home plate. In fact, he gets home plate. Then, okay, let's try second base. Oh, let's try first base. Like, it just, to me, this isn't like the coach years ago who was cussing all mic'd up, but it's kind of close from a sportsmanship angle, and so I don't like it. But, uh, by the way, the international teams that are still playing are Chinese Taipei, which is Taiwan, right? That's Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, they always make it. And then, is it Curacao? Is that right, Curacao? That, those are the two teams that are left on the international side. So I'm going to make a prediction. I think El Segundo plays Taipei. For the marbles on Sunday. I have no dog in the fight. Like, Steven's probably got a bet on this. But I, I, uh, I literally don't have a dog in the fight. But, Anna, come on. If our kid was pitching in a softball, let's use softball situation, and gives up a home run to the opposing player in, in a Little League World Series or a Softball World Series context, we're not appealing second base. We're not appealing. You, you win and lose these games on the field. I would hate to take a home run away from a 12-year-old kid who just had the moment of his lifetime on a technicality.
First of all, what are they doing in Taiwan that they're just constantly in the Little League World Series finals? I don't, I don't really get it. They have a lot of sun. You tell me because uh, there have been allegations over the years about uh, age, birth certificate, um, you know, are the kids of the right age. And there's some dominant players. Like Taipei's got a pitcher who throws like the equivalent of 100 miles an hour from, from the uh, distance that they're pitching from. And uh, obviously uh, the West team from El Segundo has got a uh, power hitter that's got, you know, a whole bunch of home runs. While they're both in sunny places, they have a lot of time to practice outdoors. I don't know. Maybe Taiwan's juicing. Um uh, you know, I, I wonder about the move from the coach. I don't watch enough Major League Baseball to know if he's, you know, because, like, the coaches and the players uh, sometimes charmingly try to emulate what the big leagues do. And when it really comes through is when you see a little leaguer, some, like, 11-year-old kid who doesn't even shave yet, being interviewed post-game, and he's got all of the talking points that he's heard on SportsCenter since he was three years old. And he's just regurgitating the kind of, like, you know, verbology that the big league players do. I think it's adorable. But I wonder if this is, if this is that kind of thing. Probably totally born from that. Also born from, like, somebody's dad who's in the stands who happens to be an attorney screaming at the coach, he missed home plate, he missed second base. He meant, like, we can't beat him on the field, let's beat him somewhere else. But I think you're right. I think they're, the managers are probably treating it like it's a Major League Baseball game. And, look, uh, I would feel really bad if I was Tennessee and I had advanced in an elimination game by virtue of uh, getting a player called out uh, on a technicality like that. Anyway, we'll talk more about the Little League World Series on Monday. If you missed any of today's show, I just want to recap. We had so many good guests on today's show. Uh, we started with Eric Revno, the assistant basketball coach at Oregon State, who sliced and diced the NCAA, the presidents, the, the game itself. Uh, what's wrong with college athletics? Basically, if you want to know, listen to the podcast today of my interview with Eric Revno, who coached in the ACC, the former University of Portland men's basketball head coach, now an assistant at Oregon State, a player at Stanford in his playing days. He's got great perspective. He was fantastic in hour one. DJ Uyungalele, the quarterback, the starting quarterback at Oregon State, joined us also in hour number one. He was remarkable. We talked about, uh, you know, the, the the ability for him to walk around Corvallis and, and relax and uh, his NIL deal with uh, Beats by Dre and how he's approaching the first start of this season, which uh, we're a week and a couple days away for Oregon State. They'll open on a Sunday. Nick Carlin-Voigt, University of Portland men's soccer coach, joined us in Hour 2. Uh, also, Dan Lanning, University of Oregon football coach in Hour 3 this hour, the happy hour. We had great guests today. really appreciate everybody who makes this show part of your day. So grab those podcasts, digest them over the weekend. If you Even if you heard the interviews you want to share it with somebody, just go to wherever you find a podcast and search for John Canzano or Bald Face Truth. You can share those podcasts liberally. Text them to your friends. Email them to your friends. Uh, listen to them a second time if you want because I think there was nuggets in all of that stuff. We got football games coming up this weekend. Week zero. Week zero uh, taking place. USC and San Jose State uh, tomorrow. Next week, week one of the college football season. And I can't wait. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time.